On campus, the abuse of James Meredith continues. They made his life hell. It was just constant, constant harassment. They had emptied a dorm up there for him to stay in on the first floor. But on the second floor, they'd take turns and bounce basketball for 24 hours. And yet there were a lot of students and professors who were like, come on, let's get on with this. Let's accept this. Let's move forward. The young drama student, Jennifer Harmon, reaches out to Meredith and joins him for lunch. We all shyly smiled, and he shyly smiled, and we sort of said hello, and we sat there, and nobody said anything, and suddenly, literally, there was a crowd around us screaming. And it was scary, I mean, to have people scream out your name and scream, nigger lover. Oh, and even worse things, about being a white girl and with a black boy. It's been difficult researching this story. I find a photo of young men screaming at James Meredith. A face looks familiar. I think it's a family member. I show it to my mom, and she says I'm wrong. I'm not sure. But I do not ask the relative. I do not press. There are questions that Mississippians won't ask because we are not prepared to hear the answer. The National Guard accompanies Meredith for the rest of the school year. You look around and you want to find out who's in the crowd, who doesn't look like he belongs here, who doesn't look like a student. Where is that madman somehow in this crowd with his high-powered rifle? I was going through his mail that first week. One was particularly detailed. They would find his parents or his children live in Kosciuszko, Mississippi, that they were going to kill them. And I'm reading this out loud to him. He interrupted me, said, Lieutenant, I'm late for my Spanish class. That set the tone. I remember his face. He never showed any emotion. He didn't look scared. But just that same face all the time. Is this a kind of a lonely life for you, despite all these people around you? I've been living a lonely life a long time. I didn't see anything. I didn't see anybody. Do I look like I was looking at anybody? Don't you understand? I not only thought I was equal to God, I thought I was God. If there was anything that people were doing wrong, it was my fault. Because I hadn't figured out how to make things right. I was in Dixie. <laughs> away, away, way down south in Dixie. <laughs> Bring the niggas with the banjos. <laughs> Send in the clown.
just wasn't possible to start today's program without including Dixie. That is our theme song, 13 years. I don't think there's a contest. It's not even close to which song has been played the most on the cows. Our theme song. Our broadcast for today, Gusty Renegade, Context of White Supremacy, today's date, Wednesday, August 17, 2022. So I have been told I attempted to post an image of Frederick Germain Carter right in line with today's broadcast, and he died from a suicide, in quotes. I posted a newspaper article, not some, you know, craziness or meme or what have you, a newspaper report investigating the death of Frederick Germain Carter in Greenwood, Mississippi. And they banned me, or they, what did they do? They restrict you for 24 hours or saying you posted content that violates the community standards. So if you could share, that would be awesome. Let people know that we are broadcasting. And then also make sure you share Frederick Germain Carter, long history of black people dying suspiciously in Mississippi and beyond, but certainly Mississippi uh, for the cows. I was talking about, man, we have long record, 13 years. Mississippi is one of the places we've done a lot of work quickly. Prom night in Mississippi, Paul Salzman, the documentary film, we talked about that. We wish you back. Akinyele Umoja, Black Bodies in the River, David Houck just on the program. This nonviolent stuff will get you killed. Charles E. Cobb Jr., David L. Jordan, Mississippi State Representative, we talked about the suspicious suicide of Frederick Germain Carter and Keith Beauchamp. We talked about the death of Emmett Till also in Greenwood, Mississippi. Our guest for today's program, directly linked, this is one of those you hear it chronologically. So we had David Houck on the program, Black Bodies in the River, all about Freedom Summer, Mississippi. Bob Moses, some of the same folks in the book we're talking about today. Then we had Dr. Kenneth O'Reilly on to talk about racial, racial matters, whole chapter in the book, Mississippi Burner, Freedom Summer, 1964, led us to the program that we are discussing today, the audio segment at the very beginning from the ESPN documentary, Ghosts of Old Miss, about their undefeated 1962 season that also happens to be the year that James Meredith, the legend, Air Force veteran, integrated so-called Ole Miss, uh, one of his classmates, uh, our guest for the program today, journalist, historian, author of the book, When Evil Lived in Laurel, the White Knights and the Murder of Vernon Dahmer. I didn't even know who Vernon Dahmer was. Thankfully, I did know about James Meredith, but Vernon Dahmer important person, victim of white supremacy. We'll hear about him today. Joining us live, the author, Mr. Curtis Wilkie. Mr. Wilkie, this will be my one time. Mr. Wilkie, you with us, sir? I'm here. Thank you so much for sharing a bit of your Wednesday evening uh, with us. Uh, for our listeners, if you'd like to briefly, anything that you'd like to share with our listeners about who you are, the work that you've done? Well, just briefly, uh, you know, I'm a I'm a white journalist and was a white student at Ole Miss in 1962, and it was a it was a it was a, a dreadful time. You know, it, it's hard to believe it was 60 years ago. Uh, coming up next month, uh, things uh, happily are 
much better at the university than they were then. There's been a lot of strides made, um, still got strides to take uh, as always, but uh, uh, that was a that was a tough, tough period. And you're right not uh, not only tough uh, at the University of Mississippi, but all over Mississippi. It was a it was a tough place in the '60s. Uh, I graduated uh, the same year as James Meredith, and uh, became a newspaper reporter and worked in the Mississippi Delta. Uh, until 1969, and so I was there for much of uh, what went on during the Civil Rights Movement in in Mississippi, Uh, and I I, I think there's probably no state in the Union that had a a poorer record than Mississippi did, Uh, so it was a, it was a, it was a rough time, and thank you for you know your interest in continuing to uh, shine a light in some of those dark corners that deserve to still be looked at. Uh, I uh, you know left Mississippi, and most of my journalistic career I worked for the Boston Globe, and uh, but uh, continued even when I was. Uh, up north, they would send me back uh, down south, and uh, I eventually, uh, the last seven years of my uh, career with the Globe, worked out of New Orleans and largely covering the south, and I covered uh, two of the uh, uh, very famous trials uh, that came more than 30 years after uh, the cases, and that was the... uh, the trial of DeLay Beckwith, who assassinated Medgar Evers in 1963, shot him uh, in his driveway of his home. He was the uh, field secretary for the NAACP in uh, Mississippi, and that was one of the many horrific murders. And then uh, another murder that did not get as much attention as it deserved is the one that uh, the book uh wrote that uh, the book came out uh, about a year ago when Ebo lived in Laurel. That uh, involved the murder of Vernon uh, uh, Damer in, uh, outside of Hattiesburg, Mississippi, who was very active, well-known uh, in Mississippi in the movement. He was uh, very courageous and one of the leaders in voter registration campaigns in South Mississippi, and uh, he was uh, killed in, in a firebombing at his home uh, one night in January of 1966, and it was not until 32 years later that uh, the Imperial Wizard of the White Knights of the Ku Klux Klan, um, a character named Sam Bowers, uh, was finally convicted 32 years after that that murder. Uh, Bowers was the one who ordered it and orchestrated it, and uh, I covered that trial uh, also. I think that was about the sixth or seventh trial that was held in attempts to convict Bowers, and uh, each time previously it would be a hung jury, and uh, this time... Um, uh, 
largely on the strength of the interest that the conviction of Beckwith for the murder of Medgar Evers, it, that provided the momentum for the state to go after uh, and finally uh, uh, convict Sam Bowers, the Imperial Wizard. So uh, my book is largely about uh, that case of, of Bowers and uh, you know the courageous Vernon uh, Damer and uh, one white man who had been asked to uh, join the Klan by the FBI so that he could report on them, and which he did for about four years. His name was Tom Landrum, and uh, uh, the Landrum family made his papers available to me, and uh, uh, were very useful in my putting together this book. So I've kind of gone on a little bit longer. I was filibustering a bit, but... Uh, uh, anyway, I'm glad to be on your program, Gus, and uh, we, we can just talk about uh, anything we want to. Feel free to ask me any questions. I hope I'll uh, be able to deal with them. <laughs> right on. Let's start with a softball one uh, for our listeners' metaphor. Uh, is it all right for us to ask how old you are, sir? Sure. I'll be 82 next month. Wow. Octogenarian, as they say, right on, impressive. Uh, you already told us you are a white man, uh, classmate of James Meredith, one of my heroes. Uh, on this broadcast, uh, we always start making sure we give our definition for what we're talking about when we say racism. Uh, I use the term racism uh, and the term white supremacy as synonyms. Same definition for both terms. The definition I use is as follows a global system of people who classify themselves as white and are dedicated to abusing and or subjugating everyone in the known universe whom they classify as not white. Do you think such a system exists? Do you think that definition is accurate? Oh, yeah, I don't think I find anything I disagree with. It's a, it's a, it's a tough word, uh, it's a, it, but it's an ugly practice, and um, uh, it's uh, one that uh, can be, be fairly be applied to, uh, unfortunately, still today, many, many people in this country and uh, uh, in terms of a percentage uh, I, I don't think there, that's one thing that I, I'm encouraged by is that in Mississippi where I'm living again today um, and actually returned to Ole Miss and taught there for nearly 20 years after I graduated from, uh, uh, or from after I retired from the Boston Globe. Um, it, I find each generation's getting better on race, but we still got, as I said earlier, uh, we've got a long way to go. 
fascinating. That's what President Obama told us back in uh, 2013. Uh, James Craig Anderson. I forgot James Craig Anderson. Make sure I get his name in as well. What part of Mississippi are you speaking with us from today, sir? I'm in Oxford, Mississippi, where uh, James Meredith will be uh, honored and celebrated uh, at an event. Uh, next month that will mark the 60th anniversary of uh, of his enrollment at the school. Wow. Bravo for Mr. Mary. The job well done. And uh, he looks great every time I see him. Like, wow, that is impressive. So much that he's gone through. And he looks he looks better than I do. And he's like 70 years old. <laughs> That's crazy. Anywho. He's, uh, he's remarkable. Uh, I, I wound up... Uh, I didn't teach her, but I got to know her uh, pretty well. His granddaughter, Jasmine, uh, uh, just got a graduate degree from Ole Miss last year, and I was at an event, uh, and Jasmine came up to me and said, uh, come on, let's go say hi to my grandfather. And and so I'd be delighted, and I went up, and uh, his wife, Judy, uh, recognized me right away and greeted me, and uh, James Mary says, oh, here's my friend who's in all the documentaries. So, uh, you know, I have uh, quite often, because I am 82, there are not a lot of us uh, still left who are there, but fortunately, James Merritt is, and I am that. I'm often called upon to talk about that particular period and time in our history, and I'm always glad to uh, to do it. You know that ESPN uh, uh, the audio that you were using at the top of the show. Uh, if you look at that, uh, that and I think that show probably came out 15, maybe 20 years ago. Um, You'll see me in it. I was, uh, you know, one of the people who was interviewed for that for that show. Absolutely, I didn't even know he was in it until I rewatched it, prepping for. I was rewatching it, not thinking, "Oh yeah, our guest is in it." I was just rewatching it because it was relevant to the subject matter. I was like, "Oh man, there's our guest! How funny!" Anywho, uh, right relevant to that very documentary, which is amazing, has lots of great info and great uh, conversations from Mr. Meredith. Uh, They talk about the significance of old black Joe and Dixie. Now, we heard Dixie at the beginning. As I said, that is our theme song, but I don't know if we've played old black Joe. What is the significance, I guess, in the context of old miss of old black Joe? Well, uh, you know, Old Black Joe, I guess, is a, another one of those uh, dreadful songs from, uh, you know, the plantation era that uh, was supposed to be, uh, uh, I, I don't know, romantic or whatever, but it, you know, has a way of uh, minimizing uh, the role of uh, the black man who's... Uh, you know, working on the plantation that he's, you know, basically consigned to be old black Joe instead of a, you know, a real man, uh, something that it belittles him. And, uh, yeah, I, 
I don't know whether that's a song, one of the songs that Stephen Foster wrote, but uh, it was a songwriter, you know, maybe close to 100 years ago who was famous for writing uh, these kind of songs that kind of uh, try to put a wonderful face on the plantation system. So uh, it's probably as out of date as the song Dixie or Dixieland or whatever that one is. But uh, happily, you don't really hear much of that anymore down here. I'm sure there's some circles that uh, uh, may try to revive those those songs, but uh, certainly they uh, you heard a lot of them 60 years ago. I hear Dixie on a pretty regular basis. Uh, in fact, we had uh, I said we had State Senator. David Lee Jordan, as a guest on the program, uh, we discussed the suspicious hanging death of Frederick Germain Carter in Greenwood, Mississippi, 2010. And I started the program with Dixie, and he interrupted the song like we were doing our, our thing. I couldn't even get started. He said, oh, my end, that's Dixie. Do you know the last time I heard that? I was up in Boston. We were there. President Obama was speaking at a Democratic convention this 2000 before, so I guess he wasn't president, guess, uh, senator at the time. Uh, but he was speaking at the convention. And we rotted Boston, and they were playing Dixie. I was stunned, like, my goodness, I'm all the way in, I was born in Mississippi, and now I come all the way to Ma- Massachusetts. How about that? Go all the way to Massachusetts, and they're playing Dixie. I was stunned. I didn't know whether to laugh or what was going on. But I hear Dixie all the time, especially now that I know what it is. They had to be uh, forced to stop playing uh, Old Black Joe at Ole Miss football games and, and the flag and all that. Is that true? Yeah, I don't know whether they ever really played Old Black Joe, but, you know, Dixie was very much uh, a sort of a fight song. And uh, that was eliminated, I don't know, probably at least 20, 25 years ago. But there were other things. uh, There was uh, the displays of the confederate battle flag they would uh people would wave them like pennants at uh, at football games and um they did away with that uh, there was an argument over whether uh, uh that would depriving someone of their first amendment rights to uh you know have their views known and um the chancellor of the university, my friend Robert Cayet at the time, uh, uh, he was trying to figure out, okay, how do we get rid of these, get rid of the flag? And he finally came up with a ruling that you can't have anything uh, attached to a stick in the stadium for safety purposes. And that worked. Uh, and it had the effect of eliminating uh, corn dogs that they would sell at the concession stand, a little uh, hot dog with the cornmeal on the front. It's you know deep fat fried. And it's on a stick. Well, they had to quit serving it too. So uh, we not only got rid of the uh, 
Confederate battle flags, but we got rid of corn dogs at the same time. So they did uh, eliminate that, eliminated playing uh, Dixie. Uh, you know, when I was a student, uh, the band, the student band, dressed in Confederate uh, uniforms, and God knows that's certainly gone. That was uh, that's been gone for decades. So there. You know, there's been a, a serious process of uh, eliminating so many of these symbols of uh, the old Confederacy. Uh, it was even a big Confederate memorial statue in a very prominent place on the campus. That uh, that was probably the last thing to go, and it was moved. Uh, three or four years ago. It's quite a job to get rid of it, but they did, and uh, they moved it to, uh, you know, uh, if you're going to have a proper place at all, there was a, uh, there's a cemetery uh, uh, in an obscure place on the campus uh, where there's uh, a number of uh, victims from the Battle of Shiloh are buried there, and so it's, it's, I think some Union soldiers were also buried there, people whose bodies couldn't be identified, and uh, uh, so it's 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 kind of a Civil War cemetery, and uh, uh, they moved that statue. It's basically out of sight. You know, you really had to make an effort to see it, so it's gone from its prominent place, and, you know, basically that's, all of that stuff is frowned upon uh, on the campus, certainly. Uh, you know, and, and instead of having one black student, James Meredith, uh, I think we probably have close to 20% of the student body uh, people of color, and uh, and it's increasing every year. Uh, the state is about one-third black, and uh, I think the, the goal is for, you know, the, the University of Mississippi to represent the population of the state. So, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm proud of a lot of the progress that we've made over the years, but you know, I, I keep stressing, and I would stress to this to my students, you know, we still got a way to go. Let's pivot to your book, Context of White Supremacy, again. Our guest, Curtis Wilkie, uh, the book, When Evil Lived in Laurel, The White Knights and the Murder of Vernon Damer, uh, specifically, or I guess I'll, I'll start with a couple questions just around the title and then the book in general. I'll start with the big one. Uh, were you trying to solve a problem with this book, When Evil Lived in Laurel? Uh, I don't know whether, you know, I would like to think much of the problem had already been solved that I was writing about uh, uh, a victory. It took a long time coming, uh, but uh, a victory for the civil rights forces in Mississippi. You know, it, was, uh, it was a battle that cost Vernon Damer his life, but uh, a lot of other people. But uh, the 
White Knights of the Ku Klux Klan was the most vicious group in the state. They were the ones responsible for those horrific murders in the Shoba County in 1964. And um, they were, uh, you know, completely broken up, and uh, uh, a number of members of the, that group wound up uh, going to prison. So uh, I don't think my book really uh, did anything other than, I hope, uh, remind people of how bad it was during that period in the 60s and how uh, you know uh, people with courage can help remedy a situation. And with... Uh, you know, courage from Vernon Damer, who uh, was an NAACP leader there, but also the courage of this one white man who was a local guy who did not, he hated the Klan, and um, he was encouraged to join the Klan, which he did, and reported on them for uh, for four years, and it led to help lead to uh, the breakup of uh, the White Knights. Okay, so, well, we already got that one, so this was reporting, a lot of this information was there, more reporting on a victory, so-called, in this case. Who is Mimi, M-I-M-I, who is Mimi? Oh, uh, Mimi is, if I dare use the term girlfriend at my age, but uh, uh, she's a wonderful lady that, that I go out with lives in Memphis and uh, uh, so you know you have to I've written six books all together and um, uh, gone through my children and my mother and various other people in dedications and uh, I thought it was you know quite appropriate that uh, I dedicate this book uh, to my friend Mimi Oh, okay. Right on. Uh, let's see. Uh, you start the book off, Edmund Burke, the only thing necessary for the triumph of evil is for good men to do nothing. Why is that at the very beginning of when evil lived in Laurel? I just thought it was very appropriate. Uh, it's kind of an epigram, and uh, I, in most of my books I've tried to uh, even before the text begins to have a quote from someone that I think is appropriate. And uh, in this case, it, that's a quotation I've always liked. Uh, Edmund Burke was an Irish uh, diplomat who was actually served as a representative of Ireland in the... Uh, British Parliament when before Ireland uh, gained its independence. So that quote is probably 150, 200 years old. But I've always liked it because uh, I just feel very strongly that uh, this applies to you know, people of any any race. Uh, uh, if uh, if good people don't stand up and fight 
for what's right. Uh, you know, evil triumphs. Uh, and, you know, evil triumphs in Germany in the years in, leading up to World War II and during that period, uh, you see, you continue to see evil, evil triumph. And uh, it's because uh, a lot of evil people wind up with more power than uh, uh, than, than than good people. So I, I just I've always liked that quote because I uh, I also think back to the period of 1962, which we were talking about at the very beginning. That was when James Meredith. Uh, finally succeeded in integrating University of Mississippi. There were not very many white people who stood up for him and his cause, and uh, uh, they were, you know, too meek, too intimidated, whatever, uh, to take action. And uh, so I've, I've seen firsthand of what could happen when good men do nothing. I think, you know, the state was not composed of all evil men during this period. There were a lot of good people, but they were afraid to do anything. And um, so uh, in this case, you had, uh, uh, you know, the, probably the three main characters in the book would be uh, an evil man, Sam Bowers, who was the imperial wizard of the White Knights of the Ku Klux Klan, and two good, courageous men, Vernon Damer, who was the NAACP leader who uh, led the voter rights, voter registration drives, and uh, and then Tom Landrum, the, the white man who... Uh, uh, joined the Klan uh, in order to report secretly on them uh, and uh, help bring them down. Hmm. Uh, can a good person practice racism? Mm. That's a good question. It's kind of philosophical. Uh, they can, yeah, I think, we'll go back again to the period when I was a young man. Uh, uh, I think those of us who, you know, if we didn't kind of rise up against the system, we were... Uh, I guess one could say we were practicing or at least uh, encouraging or supporting racism. And there were very few white people during that time who were willing to uh, publicly denounce what was going on. Uh, I I more than once uh, said to James Meredith, that I'm sorry when I was a student that I didn't do more to make things easier for him, that 
uh, I should have at least, you know, sought him out and have a cup of coffee with him and say, you know, welcome to this campus. And I didn't do it. You know, I was, it was not because I was upset over his presence on the campus. It was simply uh, uh, something I did not do. It was, uh, it was, you know, it's a lack of, you know, it's lack of courage. And uh, so, you know, essentially an apology I have, I made him the first time I met him, you know, a few years later, but more than 50 years ago. Uh, so, you know, yeah, I think uh, you you're not overtly practicing racism. I was always taught at my home by my parents that, uh, uh, you know, there are words that you avoid and you treat everybody with dignity and uh, that, you, you know, that you recognize some equality. But uh, at, at the same time, uh, if maybe one could say if I wasn't out, you know, demonstrating would uh, say the, uh, the people in Mississippi in the 60s who were in the streets and getting thrown in jail, uh, was I practicing racism? I, you know, I didn't mean to, but I probably was back then, but... Uh, I very quickly, um, I think the role that I played as a newspaper reporter was uh, was a constructive one. So I'd like to think that uh, I tried to uh, absorb myself of, uh, of some of the things I failed to do as a as a young man. So that's a that's a tough philosophical question, and uh, uh, it's one worth worth addressing. And I've always been happy to uh, try to deal with it, but uh, it's uh, there's still there's still plenty of uh, people down here who very overtly practice racism. There are people in our state government who still practice racism overtly and uh, try to maintain uh, racist policies. But uh, Well, I'll, I'll I, pause right there. Uh, sure. Martin, Curtis. Uh, and for listeners, he did ask me or say, yeah, use first name. Don't have to do all the formalities. Curtis Wilkie. Um, sure. For one, uh, I didn't really hear an answer to the question about whether or not a person can be a so-called good person and practice racism, although that was, you know, interesting response. Let's ask this one. Uh, and this is because I found a lot of times white people are not honest when they talk about racism, white supremacy, especially when they talk to black people. Uh, and you being an octogenarian and someone native of Mississippi, my goodness, man, we have asked white people on this here platform for over for years, a good decade or so, about racist jokes. Man, 
I found that's one of the times where you can really get accurate, honest information about what white people think about black people, especially black people. Man, I am sure James Meredith heard some zingers over the years, especially that year at Ole Miss. Uh, in fact, we were just talking, they were talking about a police department that they were going to shut down in your native Mississippi. I have to look to get the exact jurisdiction before we go off. The racist joke that they shared, this was just over the past couple of days, was what do you call a pregnant slave? The punchline, buy one, get one free. These were enforcement officers who were texting this. The racist jokes abound. I always think they're amazing. For you to be a white man over 80 in Mississippi for a good chunk of your time on the planet, you have to have heard, I mean, many, 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 many dozens of racist jokes. Curtis, is it possible if you can think one of the racist jokes that you have heard in your time on the planet, if you could share with us, that would be awesome. I even look because this comes up directly in the book, Brother uh, Dave. I checked on YouTube, so is there one racist joke that you remember, Curtis, that you could share with us? Uh, if I could remember them, I wouldn't because I wouldn't want to repeat uh, things like that. But you're right, you know, the, uh, racist jokes flourish, and uh, but you, you know, uh, nobody tells me any because they know I disapprove, and um, uh I have, uh, you know, when I was, again, uh, uh, let's say in high school or something, I'm sure I heard plenty of racist jokes, and I'm ashamed to say I probably laughed at some of them, but I find them, you know, absolutely reprehensible today, and um, uh and you're right, you know, you you have people in authority who uh you know, like to, you know, tell ugly jokes like that. And it's kind of it's you know, they're designed to be de dehumanizing and uh, I, I just I think they're despicable. So no, if, if I, I I honestly can't uh, think automatically of one because I don't tell them and I don't want to hear them. But uh, you know, there you know there were comedians, and that, that's the guy that you mentioned who I mentioned in uh, in the book, Brother Dave Gardner. You know, he would he was a stand-up comedian who uh, basically told nothing but racist jokes, jokes at the expense of black people. And uh, it was very popular. And I think there were recordings of Brother Dave Gardner and there are other, others like that. His material is on YouTube if folks want to do any research. We had uh, earlier this month, we had the, the classic if the man in the moon was a coon. Uh, and then we got Brother Dave Gardner. So we have gone through the archives 
of racism. Uh, getting to one of the courageous figures in the book that you mentioned, Vernon Damer. As I said, I didn't know about him until I read this book, so I got to learn. This is uh, going directly to Chapter 4 of the text. You write, uh, on top of his civil rights activities, there was an unusual characteristic about Damer that posed a special irritant to the Klan. His complexion appeared almost ashen, so light that he could have posed as a white man and not been discovered. One member of the White Knights confessed to his mates that he once completed a business deal with Damer by unwittingly shaking hands, thinking he was a white man. In racist circles, it was taboo to shake hands with a black man because the act could be perceived as putting him on equal footing. Some of the white knights called him the white nigger, resenting him for having flesh as pale as their own sun-weathered skin. Damer became accustomed to getting threatening telephone calls at home. Occasionally, the callers would refer to his complexion. You may think you're a white man, they would tell him, but we know you're nothing but a no-good black nigger. Damer was a burly yet handsome man. He kept his hair closely cropped and groomed a thin mustache as debonair as that of the movie star Errol Flynn. Yet he made no effort to pass for white. He exhibited his pride in being a black man through his leadership role with the NAACP. It was not widely known, but Damer happened to look like a white man because he was descended from three generations of a family whose racial distinctions were as tangled as the doomed Supton family in William Faulkner's novel, Absalom, Absalom. Damer was a product of what Natasha Trethaway, a Mississippi-born poet, laureate of the United States, would call the muck of ancestry affecting black populations in the South. Damer's great-grandfather was an Irishman named Osborne Kelly who moved from Georgia to Mississippi Territory in 1790 and established a frontier home in a tract of land between the Bowie and Leaf Rivers that eventually became known as Kelly Settlement. After building a homestead, Kelly acquired a slave girl named Sarah, who eventually bore 12 children, said to have been sired by either Kelly or other white men. All of the children who grew up in slavery took Kelly as their family name. The youngest was a boy, Warren Kelly, who married a young slave woman named Henrietta. She, too, was the product of an interracial relationship between her mother and a white Mississippi man named McComb. I will stop there as you're kind of going through some of the lineage and also what additionally irritated racists about Mr. Dama along with his political activity countering racism, white supremacy, any other, and having four children who also joined the military. Like, my goodness, what an amazing family. Uh, any other details you would like to add about Mr. Vernon Damer, courageous counter-racist victim of white supremacy? Uh, only that uh, it's, I think when we talked about me going on the show, I, I told you that I uh, appreciate your interest in the Damer case because I think he's one of the unsung heroes of the civil rights movement. He was well-known in Mississippi, but not that well-known outside of the state. And um, he he is a guy who uh, gave his life for, for the cause. And uh, uh, he had been a very important uh, uh, 
member of the leadership uh, who were involved in the civil rights movement in Mississippi. So uh, uh, I never met Mr. Damer. I got to know his uh, widow, uh, Ellie Damer, and uh, a couple of his sons uh, when I covered the trial back in 1998 uh, uh, of uh, Sam Bowers. So uh, uh, I've just uh, it, it felt it. He's just a uh, you know, a, you know, a great, a great hero in Mississippi, and you know there are uh, there are a lot of people uh, in that pantheon of of heroes, uh, and whether it's you know someone you know internationally known like Dr. Martin Luther King or uh, uh, Medgar Evers who. I met once as a young reporter, and then he was gone, you know, shot in the back in his driveway of his home, uh, 1963. Um, and then people who, you know, didn't die of violent death, but uh, were just uh, great heroes, you know, people like, and, and, and these were people that I got to know as a young reporter, and Mississippi, but uh, Aaron Henry, who became, uh, he was the state president of NAACP in Mississippi during this period, and he was a, a pharmacist uh, in Clarksdale, which was the town where I worked, and Aaron Henry was a, a great source for me, and uh, he taught me so much uh, uh in terms of just humanity and uh, the righteousness of his cause, and he's somebody that I dealt with, you know, if not every day, certainly, you know, every week for six or seven years. And Aaron was a was a real hero. Uh, Miss Fannie Lou Hamer, uh, very famous for. Uh, for her role uh, in, in the movement, so there, uh, there, literally hundreds of of heroes in Mississippi, and, and you know Vernon Damer is one of them, and uh, that, that's why I was, uh, you know, glad to do this book, and I hope that it, uh, it brings him some recognition. Hmm. With uh, one of the patterns, this is one of the things that I've noted consistently over the years. Um, we have uh, white guests on the program, and when white people talk about racism, white supremacy, the word you used before, uh, minimizing, I think that's so important. Uh, and just with regards to racism, white supremacy, I think accuracy with words uh, is such a crucial component of solving this problem. When I look, when you're talking about uh, explaining kind of how uh, Vernon Damer, how does he have this light complexion, which seems to really bother some of these uh, cluckers, racists in Mississippi, the fact that he could pass for a white person, even though he does not, uh, Mr. Damer, that how he got that is, you say these whites who owned slaves, they had interracial relationships. Is it accurate to say all of these would be rape 
not necessarily, I don't think, but uh, uh, you know, some of these are you know would have been you know recognized unions of couples uh, where they actually lived together, uh, and you know, in terms of uh, more modern situations, uh, there's that. Uh, uh, quote that you cited from my book by Natasha Trethway, who uh, was, uh, uh, I, I know Natasha, she is a, a Mississippian. She, uh, she was poet laureate for the, uh, the U.S., and Natasha is a, uh, a product of a uh, biracial marriage. And so she I heard her reciting some of her poetry while I was working on this book. And when I heard her use that term about, uh, you know, the muck of ancestry, and I said, oh, my God, that is a perfect uh, description because it, it, it gets gets very muddled. And uh, so, no, I don't think... Uh, uh, Certainly today, uh, it's the, the, these uh, uh, situations where you have you know, uh, a child born of two people of a different race. I think it's it's becoming very common today, and. Uh, Okay, I want to pause right there, Curtis, just because I didn't ask about today. I'm asking very specifically about the portion of the book that I just read. And now I'm going to drill down very specific by sentence. Okay, and I'm just pointing this out for listeners. That with the response that we just heard from Curtis Wilkie is very common amongst white people who deliberately practice white supremacy racism. They will give you an illogical, inaccurate, untruthful answer but it will be cited to a non-white person now most of the time it's a non-white person that's deceased that's when they really are going in but non-white people are we'll get to that later but they will cite a non-white person to give you something that is totally illogical doesn't make sense so now we're going to go specific by sentence so this is all in the context of rape are we being truthful and accurate here you wrote after building a homestead, Kelly acquired a slave girl. Now, people that don't have emphasis and what have you, all the time I say, don't call a pedophile. I say, call a pedophile, a child rapist. Let me rewind that one again just to make sure people didn't get lost, confused. After building a homestead, Kelly acquired a slave girl named Sarah who eventually bore 12 children, said to have been sired by either Kelly or other white men. So this could have been multiple white men taking turns with a slave girl. We don't have an age. So I mean, 12, 13, 14, 15. So I'm going to ask specifically about this. This, Curtis Wilkie, is not rape? Oh, I, I think that if you're talking about that particular case, uh I think uh, clearly it's a situation where uh, uh, this 
you know, girl, young woman, I don't know her age either. I think uh, the term slave girl is referred to something I was relying on because it implies that she was someone probably too young to, you know, resist. So I think that's certainly fair to say that, you know, Rape was certainly involved. I thought you were talking about some of these other uh, uh, children uh, of color who were maybe sired by, you know, white people, uh, by white men. And, you know, uh, that was clearly, you know, during this period that we're talking about, I think, uh, none of those were happy unions between uh, a willing wife and a willing man. But uh, happily, you know, it has evolved into a situation where, you know, even in Mississippi, we have uh, uh, a lot of intermarriage and uh, interracial uh couples that I think it's a sign of progress. So that's what I I was not defending uh, situations where slaves were taken advantage of. You know, clearly that was rape. I I thought you were, you know, to, you know, Damer was not necessarily uh, uh, Somewhere, somewhere along the line, because that went back by, by several generations, I would think that probably that there was love involved in some of those unions that eventually produced Vernon Damer. Uh, all of that does not get any better than tacky and all of that is so common it is so painfully common and all of this as he just said since he said it's clearly rape i think i was very explicit in reading the passage uh from the text here that i was asking about that is not none of these unions so-called are described as rape they're described as interracial uh relationships this is a standard pattern when white people write these history books and talk about these events, slavery, even forward, these so-called unions are not described accurate. Here, sounds like we're not even just talking rape. We're talking child rape, which we've been talking about a lot. That's such a core part uh, of racism, white supremacy, and particularly when we talk about the plantation, when they do same thing when they talk about Thomas Jefferson and Sally Hemming. Thomas Jefferson mentioned at the end of the book, got to get Charlottesville in. Uh, that's rape. That's not a romance. That's not plantation love and all that. That if I can't consent, it's very simple. Consent. Can Sally Hemings say no to Thomas Jefferson? If the answer is no, all that other stuff and feelings totally irrelevant. The same would apply here. And I, Curtis Wilkie understood that. So same thing I said when all the other white people do this, I just conclude that this is what he said at the beginning of the program, minimizing what racism, white supremacy is, even when we use language like this and just not calling it child rape. Moving forward in the text, and in fact, 
We can stay right on the sand. Even for listeners, I have to double down on that. I find that, let me see if I can pick a correct word. We are talking about what is accurately child rape, and somehow we move to progress. Black people and white people being in bed together is progress. We've been doing that for, (laughs) you just said in the book, 1700s. If that was going to solve this problem, we wouldn't be having this conversation. That's another one that I just have to pick out now as deliberate racism. Matter of fact, is Mimi white or non-white? Mimi is white. She is, uh, you know, if you want to get into uh, uh, discrimination, uh, you know, she's uh, Jewish, and uh, that would be, uh, she is somebody who's experienced uh, discrimination because, uh, you know, of her own uh, her own personal and family background. Okay. I just wanted to know if she was a white person or a non-white person. We'll get to, in fact, you talk about so-called Jewish people being mistreated in the book. I have that highlighted. I want to make sure that we get to that as well. Before we get to that, I just want to come back to the sexual component because I think that is, that is amazing. Uh, one important, in my view, a deliberate act of racism uh, by Curtis Wilkie and not describing the uh, rape of these uh, black slaves. Uh, that's one. Now the sex component comes up in the book so many times. I don't even know the best way to, to try to do it, to read some of these together so that people can hear uh, what do I mean? Let's let us begin. Let's see. Uh, so this is chapter two. You write uh, Caldwell brimmed with other proposals. A bunch of niggers been swimming out out of Lake Bogue Homa. We need to take some action. We need what we need to do is get about 50 pounds of dynamite and plant it around the gate. Maybe blow a hole in the dam. That'll put a stop to the black nigger bastards. Not all the Klan's targets were black. One scheme called for vigilante action against a white couple said to be involved in an illicit affair. For the white knights who had their share of philanderers to begin imposing moral values sounded silly to Landrum. But others seemed drawn by the sadomasochistic eroticism of the proposal. A raiding party would track the couple to their trysting place, snatch them from their parked car, strip them of whatever clothing they might still be wearing, administer a beating with Black Annie, a whip, then burn their car, leaving them naked and stranded. That's one. I said... Let me put some of these together before we get a response from uh, Mr. Wood or Curtis. Sorry. So this I'm skipping forward a little bit. Now we're in Chapter 3. You continue. <laughs> Bowers was joined by a friend from his Southern Cal days, Robert Larson, who became a partner in Sambo Amusement <laughs> and moved into the building, which was reportedly filthy inside. Their living arrangement caused at least one visitor to speculate that Bowers was queer. 
but it seems unlikely that the members of the White Knights who excluded machismo would have accepted a homosexual as their leader. Bowers remained single and childless. Now, they continue. Let me give one more. Let me give one more. Uh, let's see. This is a little bit further in the text. Uh, chapter. Quite a bit further in the text, actually. All right. So this is chapter eight. This one, you write, the Damers weathered random violence, the windows broken by vandals and the hay shed torched, and they became somewhat accustomed to the obscene telephone calls. Ellie would listen to the conversations on an extension as Vernon fended off the threats. Nigger, you're going to get killed if you want your child in somebody's white school or you black nigger bastard. You might think you're white, but you're not. There it is again. Or, nigger, you're going to get killed if you keep on doing what you're doing. Quite often, the damers would hear loud music and laughter in the background and concluded the calls were coming from men juiced by alcohol in redneck honky-tonks. Occasionally, a male voice on the phone offered lurid suggestions. He called Damer a queer and proposed meeting places where homosexual needs could be fulfilled. Man, I've got a wife and children, Damer told the caller. You've got the wrong person. Ellie, who overheard them, labeled these the super freak calls. It doesn't say super freak, it says freak. The freak calls. The sex calls. Now, there are more in the book. I'm just pausing there. Like I said, I think it's better for listeners to kind of hear some of these together. Hmm. What do you make of all of the sex? You don't like this guy's civil rights activity, so you invite him out for homosexual activity? What? Well, I, uh, my interpretation is that, you know, they would, were not seriously doing that. They felt that this was, you know, a, uh, again, a dehumanizing uh, act that they would, uh, you know, try to, to lay on him. And uh, that's why I, you know, described... Uh, you know, how absurd, I think, this idea of, uh, you know, snatching uh, a couple who are parked and, you know, you know, just robing them completely and, uh, you know, because they're parked uh, on the side of a road or something. Uh, this was kind of it's an illustration of how twisted and bent some of these these clansmen were. So when they're uh, uh, proposing something like that to Vernon Damer, you know they're not seriously suggesting uh, that you know they want to uh, engage in some sexual practice with him, but they think it's a way of insulting him further. 
emasculating him, as it were. Sure, yeah. Okay. That's, you don't, I mean, there are many ways of emasculating. Even the threat, now I can stick with Mississippi, uh, its report. We had Keith Beauchamp on the program. He did the documentary, uh, Emmett Lewis Till. He was castrated. And they have lots of ways of castrating black males, emasculating black males, like out of all the threats, nigga, we're going to kill you. Nigga, move or we're going to kill you. All of this, we're calling and saying, you're gay. Come meet us for homosexual activity. (laughs) What? For someone who's married with children. Like, what? In fact, that's the sort of thing. Are you familiar with uh, the book Racial Matters by Kenneth O'Reilly? No, I'm not. Okay. He has a whole, ch- I guess the full title for folks, Racial Matters, the FBI's Secret File on Black America from 1960 to 1972. He has a whole chapter on uh, Mississippi burning, the Freedom Summer murders that happened, James Cheney, the two white boys. He has a specific section where he talks about reports where the Klan, they were attempting to rile up the black people. And so what they would do, they were going to see if they could lure black males out. They were going to dress as white women and see if they could lure the, the sex-crazed Negro beast out after these white women. <laughs> and they, they were going to beat them like, what? You're going to dress in drag because you... You know, God, uh, no, that's the first I've heard of that. It's fairly ludicrous. Racial matters. Now, when you start seeing a pattern, even the lynchings, we've talked about delectable Negro and seeing these as sexual acts, particularly so many of these lynchings involve disrobing the black person all the way back to plantation days. And it's going to be time to get whipped, disrobing a black person. In fact, even the name of the whip was Black Ann. What do you mean? I mean, that's kind of phallic symbolism and everything. Why would a Klansman, why would they name a, a whip Black Ann? What do you think? Well, you know, they, they, uh, they even used whips in the uh, state prison in Mississippi. At Parchman is one of the more notorious prisons uh, in America. Uh, the whip they used, it was formerly called Black Annie. Come on, come on. That's what I mean, patterns now. Come on. Parchman, the White Knights, why would all of these white and parchment like, wow, they stuff the prisons with black people at parchment, what black males especially. They don't have all that struggles. We gotta get six trials like old Mr. Bowers and Mr. They stuff black males into parchment very well and have for decades. But I mean, Black Annie. <laughs> Woo! Dr. Welsing would have a field day. We miss you. Uh, it's all of this, again, delectable Negro for folks. It's in the archives to me. Uh, even, even the act of lynching, as I said, you're, you're disrobing someone, you're getting these whips and what have you, you're castrating someone, you're cannibalizing, taking the penis or the testicles or the fingers to save them, for pass them down generations. We've talked about that, all of that. <clears throat> Woo! Delectable Negro. Uh, 
let's see, we, you mentioned in your text, this was one, Racial Matters, and your, we just had Dr. Kenneth O'Reilly on. We talked about his book, Racial Matters, about two weeks ago. Very much a lot of overlap between the two. You, in your book, you talk about particularly after the Freedom Summer 1964 murders, James Cheney, those two white boys, lots of FBI agents come in. We've got white people killed in Mississippi. Something has got to be done uh, about the Klan. Uh, you already mentioned, hey, let's start getting informants uh, and all the rest of it, see if we can infiltrate and get something done uh, about these rowdies, uh, particularly down here in the Mississippi area. Uh, you in your text, uh, when evil ruled, lived, excuse me, in Laurel, uh, get back to the correct, but there we go. All right, so here you mentioned one of those agents. Uh, this is Robert E. Lee. This is a little bit earlier in the book, backing up from all of the wacky uh, sex tales. Let's see, this is chapter two uh, in the text. You write about Agent Lee. Okay, skipping over one page. In the middle of July 1965, another man made a very different approach to Tom Landrum, Bob Lee, an FBI agent assigned to the Bureau's Laurel office several years earlier, was a regular visitor to the courthouse. As a native Southerner, his formal name was Robert E. Lee, and he had served as a highway patrolman in South Carolina before joining the FBI. Lee's presence was acceptable to the county officials in Jones County. By this time, he was considered something of a local guy himself and not part of the greatly resented FBI task force of outside agents sent to the state the year before. He moved easily among, among the courthouse personalities. I'll stop there. That's from your text. As I said, we just had Dr. Kenneth O'Reilly on the program. He mentions the same agent. Robert Lee, I said, wow, let's see, what does he have to say? Uh, Robert Lee, so I'm skipping to uh, earlier in his text. He writes, uh, this fella, do, 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 make sure I get down here on the correct page. Okay. He says, All righty, thank you all for being patient to find my highlight. Oh, that's not it. That's not it. Anyway, I'll get it in uh, one moment. I thought it was interesting in your text you present that the FBI agents came and they used different tactics or what have you to infiltrate. Talking about how Robert Lee, he's the agent who actually makes the pitch to Tom Landrum for him to infiltrate the Klan. Is that correct? That's right. Okay. Uh, and he says, hey, he, you look like one of the good guys, not in with all this mischief. This is uh, Lee talking to Tom Landrum. You look like you're not in with all of this mischief. We need you to come and do some of this. He goes and talks to Tom Landrum. He goes and talks to his wife. And should I do this? She says, yes. He even talks to his mother-in-law. Yes. Before he goes to do this. Oh, are you with yeah, us? I, yeah. I, I, he uh, he gathered his whole family and they went on a retreat and uh, you know they're 
they're religious people. They prayed. It's just something because you know he would be risking his life to do this, and uh, they had five children, and uh, so he felt that it was important that his wife uh, was supportive, and not only did she believe in it, she was the one who typed up all all his notes, and his mother-in-law was. Uh, a woman who uh, he really viewed it in many ways as like his own mother. He was very close to her, so he had gathered uh, the people he felt closest to to talk, and is this something that I should do? And uh, they all agreed, yes. You know, you know, we think you're a good man, and uh, you should stand up and do something. Okay. There was that word again, good man. That was my question that I asked at the beginning that wasn't answered. Can a good man, good person practice racism? I found my quote. So this is Dr. Kenneth O'Reilly's Racial Matters, page 57. Got too many books open. His chapter, Paper Chains. So Robert E. Lee pops up in his book. What does he say? He says with over 6,000 agents and 8,000 thousand clerical and technical employees, the FBI had the personnel to do the necessary analysis of voter registration records, but not the necessary commitment from the director or from many of the field agents who worked in the South. So the Bureau did as little as possible. The FBI snaps the shutter on the camera. Burke Marshall complained, that is all they do. Even then, the FBI cameraman needed a civil rights division lawyer on hand to tell him what to photograph and, in some cases, to make sure the agent did not sit in a bar for three hours at lunch break talking football. Ole Miss. One of Marshall's lawyers, Hugh Fleischer, who worked in Mississippi and Louisiana, observed bureau agents siding up with the people who were being investigated. I talked to the bureau agents all the time and a number of them were racists. There was one guy whose name was Robert E. Lee. Racism within the agent corps contributed to the success of Hoover's campaign of bureaucratic resistance. Racism at the top of the FBI pyramid, however, was far more important. I'll stop there. He goes on to give lots of details, but I thought that was really important. He and his text makes quite a big to-do uh, about top-down. J. Edgar Hoover and lots of these agents, not everybody, but lots of them were racist and were not friends of these black people in Mississippi. And as he said, were pretty friendly uh, with a lot of these racist Southern sheriffs. Uh, what are you, is that a discrepancy with, with what you found in the evidence, what you saw? Oh, you I, lived I, through? I, I don't think, I think it essentially uh, makes the same point that uh, uh, the reason that uh, there were so many agents from outside of Mississippi sent there, and they were not sent by J. Edgar Hoover. I mean, Hoover ultimately had to give that direction, but it was from President Johnson who basically ordered Hoover to beef up the number of agents in the state, and uh, not only was it designed to give them more manpower to work on these cases, but also to ensure that uh, the 
a lot of the, the agents were Southern and, you know, maybe were even agents in their hometown, and therefore they were, they tend to be buddies with uh, the sheriffs or the uh, the local police chiefs who, you know, uh, needed to be looked at uh, with more discerning eye than, uh, than these people who were friendly to them uh, uh, did. So you had this enormous influx of uh, agents from outside the state to, you know, basically to make sure that they were not going to be people who were going to want to be hobnobbing with uh, uh, the sheriff or the police chief and not going to be working hand in glove uh, with them uh, because they couldn't be trusted. So I don't think there's any discrepancy on uh, what Mr. O'Reilly's writing and uh, what I said in terms of uh, somebody, especially somebody named Robert E. Lee, uh, who you know, could move easily in in the uh, in the courthouse. Uh, I I never knew Robert E. Lee myself. Uh, He's, you know, he was dead before I took on this this book as a project. So, yeah, I, I can't characterize uh, where he was coming from, but it was certainly my understanding that uh, the reason he uh, could move easily is, I, I think that's the term that I used in the courthouse was because, you know, he was a, a white Southerner. And uh, uh, so I don't know whether I'm making myself clear, but, uh, you know, this, was, this wasn't unusual that you had uh, uh, Southern agents who, you know, felt like they were at home in the courthouse whereas so many of the agents who were sent by President Johnson in 64 uh, are going to be different, different, have a different approach and be more aggressive. Hmm. It, uh, to me, that is not the same thing. As I said, this is a big point. Uh, again, the book is Racial Matters, the FBI's secret file, that a reason... Many of these black people, Vernon Dahmer, other folks died in Mississippi is because the FBI was at a minimum indifferent, if not flat out racist white supremacists uh, and not hanging out just because it was easy for them to move around. We endorse racism, white supremacy, too. We are not in support of the Negroes. In fact, I just read a little bit more. This is racial matter. So I'm skipping down the bottom of 179 FBI officials also pursued their anti-communist goals by cooperating with the law enforcement community in Mississippi, sharing information with the intelligence units of the Jackson Police Department and the Highway Patrol, both mentioned in the text. This last agency claimed to have files on all known racial agitators in the state, I am sure, Vernon Damer, the FBI received additional information from the Mississippi State Sovereignty Commission, 
one of the more primitive public sector agencies formed in the wake of Brown, the Board of Education, to resist the usurpation of states' rights. The commission channeled tax dollars to the Citizen Council, hired informants, organized mass meetings, and, according to Director Ernie Johnson, Jr., Jr., turned over information on subversives to the FBI. For a time during the late 1950s and early 1960s, Chief Investigator Zach Van Lunningham, an FBI agent for 20 years, coordinated these activities. Footnoted, 20 years. Did you know about that? You mentioned the uh, Mississippi Sovereignty Commission. Did you know that they had an FBI liaison coordinating information on uh, racial agitators in the state? Uh, not surprised to hear it. I didn't know specifically, but uh, you know, just for the record, uh, you know, the the records of the Mississippi Sovereignty Commission are, are now public. Uh, you can get them uh, at the state archives, and I'm happy to say they had a file on me. Uh, <laughs> and uh, it was a small file, you know. They didn't know half of what I might have been doing as a reporter that, uh, you know, was designed to, you know, work against whatever they were up to. But uh, anyway, I'm I'm happy to say that, uh, uh, you know, I've got a file there and. I'm happy to say my mother did, too. She was considered a, apparently a troublesome school teacher. So yeah, I'm very much aware of the Sovereignty Commission. They spied on uh, all Mississippians, whites and blacks. And yeah, I, I'm very proud to have, uh, to have been spied upon by those people if they consider what I was doing was... Uh, detrimental to um, uh, the work of segregationists. According to his report, it seems they did quite a bit more than uh, spy. If they are organizing mass meetings and hiring informants and getting people fired and all the rest, like, wow, that is quite a bit. And I'm sure if it's similar to Pro, which you mentioned in your text, the folks that they are really mistreating and harming in all of this are black people. Uh, that's what all of this is about, disturbing our way of life. Uh, in fact, words, we do so much focus on words on this program. Before I get back to the FBI component, because I think that's so important, uh, you use a term in the text. I just wanted to see what this means. You say, uh, this is in chapter, well, chapter two. You write, resentment boiled up. This is talking about whites who joined the Klan. Uh, not all of them were pouring down and out, but a good number of them, a significant number of them were, you write, in Mississippi. Resentment boiled up in them like bile from an unsettled stomach, and it somehow hardened into a hatred of, of the black man. The alchemy proved powerful in Mississippi with its history of slavery and suppression. It involved a woolly belief in the Southern way of life, where whites enjoyed dominance and gentle darkies existed to serve them. Uh, the term woolly there, what, what do you mean woolly? The sentence we use it is, it involved a woolly belief in the Southern way of life. And I, I'm not even, what, what do you mean there, woolly? Well, woolly is, in, that, in that context is, you know, meant that it's uh, 
just uh, you know, I'm just trying to think of a good synonym, but it's kind of a foggy. If you foggy might be a synonym, uh, something that's uh, uh, it's just, just uh, I'm sure if you if I had a dictionary, I could probably come up with a better, a better description, but just something that's uh, not very well thought out or formed. <clears throat> okay. I, I do have a dictionary, but I always uh, love being able to hear exactly the author, why they picked that word or what, whatever connections, associations that they have uh, to the word. So much of boss. In fact, in the same line, now this, hey, you're just right reporting here, Sam Bowers. Curtis, what do you make of his business being Sambo Amusements? Like, what? The, that's the same type of thing like with Black Annie. Like, out of all the names that you could pick for business that's going to sell pinball machines and whatever else, Sambo Amusements. What do you think, Curtis? Well, he could probably say it's a combination of Sam and Bowers, but surely he also knew the connotation of Sambo and uh, you know uh, what that means racially, and maybe he thought he was being cute by naming that his uh, the name of his firm. Uh, you know, he was a it's a fairly twisted character. Uh. Hmm. Sambo Amusements, indeed. Um, before I've got to go back to the FBI, but then that's a major one because they're major role in the books. So I will circle back before I do. Just make sure we focus on this program. So many times they talk about when racism, white supremacy is discussed, the focus is on white men. Uh, in your book, lots of the, the maldoers, Sam Bowers and uh, Mr. Nix and some of these other folks, uh, Sesame, some of these other folks, they're all white guys uh, who are in the Klan and uh, coordinating this raid to kill uh, Mr. Damer, firebombing the house, and it's his children, his wife are there, uh, and all of that killing him uh, in the process, seriously injuring uh, his wife. Thankfully, his children escape and, you know, survive this attack and everything. Uh, but with all of this, White women are not really, they're not at the Klan. Like, why, uh, get uh, Tom Landrum, his wife, uh, and his mother-in-law, but white women are not really here except for Kathy Ainsworth. What you lived through all this, what is the role of white women, if we want to make it specific to this context, Mississippi, 1960s, all of this massive resistance to James Meredith and uh, Bob Moses and Freedom Summer, what are white women doing to support white supremacy racism in Mississippi during all of this? Well, a lot of them would have been, you know, active players. Uh, I can think of a white woman who was the editor of the little uh, newspaper in the South Mississippi town where I grew up. Uh, and uh, she wound up running for governor twice and uh, you know if you want to you know identify people as a bona fide racist she certainly was her name was Mary Kane and uh, 
you know, she tried to achieve, you know, a leadership position, uh, didn't, but uh, certainly, you know, there were plenty of white women who were, you know, supportive of their mates or, or their children who might have been involved who, uh, you know, were active players. It's just in, uh, in, in that period, there were not nearly as many women who were, you know, publicly identified uh, as being active, but you know, they they would have been their, their sympathies would have been with their uh, uh, with with the white white men. So you know, they were just because they were women didn't mean that they were exempt from uh, being part of what. You know, James Meredith and other people used to call it the white power structure. Just happened to be mostly male back then, hmm. publicly. Okay, okay. Fascinating, fascinating. Uh, again, Curtis uh, Wilkie, our guest on the broadcast, if folks have a question, put a hand up. Do not wait till the last moment uh, if you have commentary to share. Uh, in the text, you you have notes at the end and photographs so that folks can see, but the footnotes are not within the body of the text. Was that a decision that you made, or was that the editing group decision? That's generally the uh, the uh, way that uh, a book like mine is done. That there's a sense that it interrupts the narrative if you have footnotes uh, that if someone really wants to know where this is coming from, uh, it's available in the back of the book. It's uh, what's called end notes. And you'll also find, you know, 25 years ago, this was not necessarily a practice. You could read a book and you would have a a number of uh, assertions in the book that were based on uh, research and information, but you wouldn't know where it was coming from because uh, it, the publisher didn't require it. And I think there's a trend that, uh, you know, maybe in a textbook you'll have uh, footnotes uh, right in the, right there in the, the text. It basically interrupts the story, so you can easily look it up in the back of the uh, back of the book. So that was a decision that uh, uh, the publisher requires, and that I agree with. Hmm. Uh, as well, I'll give you my view as a historian. You can let me know what you think. Uh, particularly, I think for a book like this, and again, you already shared that Tom Landrum, white man who's asked by Robert E. Lee, FBI agent, hey, go infiltrate the Klan, take notes, let us know what they're up to, helps give them some of the notes that helps eventually after some mistrials. And whew, it was a circuitous route, but some of these white people do get convicted eventually uh, for the murder of Vernon Damer. Uh, but Tom Landrum, so he takes notes, so his wife, she's typing up his notes from, you know, what he hears, what's talked about and all that good stuff. So she's writing these notes, typing in them up, excuse me, 
uh, and saving them. Uh, she gives them to her mom and she puts them in a bank vault where they are hanging out for, I don't know, decades, 60, or close to 60 years. They're hanging out uh, in the bank vault or what have you. So you can go in and get transcriptions. But someone reading this book where white people have a long history of lying, as you talked about before, obfuscating things, leaving out important details. If it's a history book, like I can understand if it was something else, but this is a history book where we've got references to these you know, files and what have you that were transcribed and what have you, and newspaper reports, other things that were being cited. Wow. It is because uh, it, it gives the feeling, is there a stenographer present for every conversation? Like, man, they have got conversations between Landrum and his wife where they've got exact quotes. Like, how would that be? Just for me as someone who has tremendous suspicion because white people have lied so much in telling history, whether it's current or things that happened 60 years ago, 600 years ago, no. There should be immediate sourcing because, as I said, it gives the impression that was there a stenographer present at all times for everything that occurred for there to be an exact record of exactly what was said? Surely that can't be the case. Does that make sense? Well, if you look in the book, I think it's uh, maybe at the very beginning with uh, maybe an author's note, uh, I describe that in some cases uh, the uh, quotes are not necessarily verbatim, that they are reconstructed from, uh, you know, uh, from what other people tell me when I didn't hear it and it was no stenographer. You know, and if you're taking things from uh, a trial, you've got stenographers and the court reporter taking it. But um, um, then maybe I'm, say, interviewing someone and, and I will say, well, how did that conversation go? And they will describe it and maybe not uh, verbatim again, but for the purpose of telling the story, uh, I then construct the uh, the actual quote, and I point that out. Uh, and you know, am I being a hundred percent accurate? Probably not, but I think I catch the spirit of what is said. And um, so I'm making that acknowledgement uh, before anyone even sits down to begin to uh, to read the book. Mm. That is right at the beginning, uh, and the notes are at the end. But the the footnote, I guess, for people who read, the footnotes are not within the body of the text. So you kind of have to go look at the note and then match it up with the uh, page number. Even if you have the ebook, you can't even click on the footnote and it won't send you to the, you know, exact thing, that type of deal. Just what is it? Well, I'll ask this. Given that we're in a system of white supremacy, racism, is it logical for non-white people to be suspicious of anyone classified as white? Is that logical? Well, if you want to be, uh, you've got that liberty to be suspicious. But, uh, you know, as a writer, I try to be as as honest and credible as I possibly can. I've always said that uh, 
a journalist's most important possession is is his or her credibility. If we're not credible, if people don't believe us, uh, uh, we're not going to serve much of a purpose. I didn't. The question that I asked was not about the liberty. The question was I asked was, is it logical? Given that we are in a system of white supremacy racism, is it logical for non-white people to be suspicious of anyone classified as white, even yourself? Is that logical? Yeah, you can sure it, it certainly can be logical. Plenty yeah. of reasons to be suspicious, but uh, I'm simply attempting to explain how I handled uh, the information in the book. And I tried to do it as honestly and accurately as possible. Okay. Uh, the racial slurs, I have no problem with. In fact, I would have been bothered if it had been the other way, if you had included like N-word and all the rest of it in the book. I totally agree. It needs to be no well, redaction. You. I, uh, that was something that uh, uh, you know, I certainly talked through with the publisher, and I, I think – in that same author's note, I may say that there's some, you know, very ugly language, racial epithets, and uh, I just think if you actually are quoting these people the way they talked and the words they used, it shows just how damned ugly it was. And N-word doesn't get it. Mm-hmm. And I know people are offended uh, by you know you know seeing a word uh, in, in, instead of the substitute the gentle substitute of n word n word doesn't begin to convey the hatred uh, that's involved in some of this talk. So I just I've always felt that. Uh, if, if one's going to be honest, uh, you need to have them talking the way they talked. Amen. If it's Sambo Amusements, call it Sambo Amusements. In fact, I was talking to a listener. The different book that we're reading in the book club has nigger in there 38 times. Probably should be in there more, but it's in there 38 times. And I said, wow, that's a lot. And then I stopped and I looked at your book. I said, ooh, it's in there like... I I didn't begin to count. (laughs) It's in there. But it should be because it was said that frequently. Just to make it clear, this is what we're talking about. This is what... And, hey, Dr. Welzik, she says, what do white people talk about when there are no non-white people present? In fact, it's used so much. One of the reasons it's used so much, they don't say Vernon Dahmer. It's... The Dom or the Damer nigger, correct pronunciation. <laughs> I I forgot his name was Vernon. I heard it so much like that was what was in my brain because apparently it, that must have been said all the time. Oh, the Damer nigger, the Damer nigger, the Damer nigger. Did you think that was important for readers to grasp? Like that is a part of the dehumanization. You don't even have a name. You're just going to be the Damer nigger. No, I thought it's very important, and uh, you know it it even shows up uh, in. Uh, written uh depositions by some of these uh these clansmen uh that uh, they continue to refer to uh, Vernon Damer as the Damer nigger uh it's dehumanizing him 
I think I say very early in the book that, you know, not only did they uh, not dignify his name with a Mr. Uh, uh, courtesy title, uh, he was simply referred to as the Damer Nigger. Laugh to keep from crying. It is not funny at all. And I, I, I didn't even know Vernon Damer, like, reading about this guy. Like, why? talk about courageous to be threatened and all of that, the freaky sex calls and everything else. We're going to kill you and all of that. And I'm moving forward. Registering, paying poll taxes for black people and using his operation to have people come in and register to vote so they didn't have to go down to deal with all the racist uh, court clerks. Like, this is an amazing guy. The Damer nigger. Context of white supremacy. Uh, the uh, oh, how did I forget? Who did you have an intended audience for this book? Like, who did you have in mind? Boom, they're going to the library or they're going to go to the bookstore and pick up when evil lived in Laurel. Uh, no, not really. Other than it's, uh, I consider it. Uh, I don't consider myself a historian, but I consider the book uh, about history, and uh, it's not the first one of these I've written. And uh, uh, so, no, I don't single out, uh, you know, a particular uh, group or uh, saying this is my target audience. I would hope it would be you know, read by and, you know, ideally bought by, you know, you know, a lot of people and but uh as wide an audience as possible. NPR says it's one of the best books of two thousand twenty one. Uh and line kinda of with that same question, I see some of the folks have questions. Uh who do you think is more informed about what racism, white supremacy is, and how it works. Do you think white people are more informed about how this system works, how it's still in place, or do you think non-white people are more informed about what racism is and how it works? Uh, my sense is that people who uh, are subjected to it have a much better understanding than, uh, than white people. But uh, yeah, I've, I've, one of the things I uh, would not ever attempt to be would be uh, you know a spokesman for what uh, goes on in say the mind of a person of color. I I can't put myself there. I try to barely convey, you know, what kind of man Vernon Damer was in the book. But, uh, yeah, I think it would be presumptuous of me to to be able to, you know, say accurately, this is what uh, the black people think. Hmm. Okay. So you think non-white people more informed about what racism is, how it works. Although you already told Probably us from 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 experience, you know, they, uh, 
it's information easily obtained by them because they're subjected to it. Hmm. Okay. Okay. Uh, you are a white man, uh, but you are informed about white supremacy, racism, what it is, how it works. You've written many books about it and many, many decades of newspaper reports about it and teach classes uh, on the history uh, of the system and all that. So that's true, right? Yeah. I know. Let's see. I re- oh, and I made an error. Make sure strive for accuracy. These police department that they were going to shut down, I mentioned it way back with the racist jokes. Uh, what is a pregnant slave? Buy one, get one free was not Mississippi. I was greedy. Right next door in Alabama, though. Vincent, Alabama. So it's not like We'll, it we'll be happy uh, to share that. <laughs> <laughs> Irie in Louisiana. Right now, we did the whole little southern region, Louisiana, Louisiana, Mississippi, Alabama. Bang, bang, bang. Got them all. Uh, Irie in Louisiana, right next door. Did you have a question for Curtis Wilkie? He did say call him Curtis. Uh, yes. Excuse me. Good evening. Um, I tuned in late, and I just was going to listen, but I literally dropped what I was had in my hand, I heard Laurel, Mississippi, so I have a question and then a comment. What's the name of the book? When Evil Lived in Laurel. Oh, my. Okay, so my grandmother uh, is from, well, she's uh, departed, but she was from Laurel, and she left and moved to New Orleans, I'm not sure when, and maybe this will give a little bit of um, insight on the question Gus asked about who's more informed. We would go to Laurel yearly, maybe even twice yearly, and I remember thinking in general that Mississippi was a a dangerous place, but I always second-guessed Laurel being a safe place because she never mentioned anything happening like what I'm hearing about right now. And so I'm wondering why she didn't tell me because I'm sure she probably knew, but um, I'm in the position that we're less informed of racism, white supremacy, because I didn't have any idea. And I've been in Laurel and my my soul is kind of quaking knowing that (laughs) There was, this happened to Mr. Damer. I have to find out more about him. Um, I will ask this question, um, and pardon if I missed it and you spoke on it, was, did he have any interaction with Fannie Lou Hamer in Sunflower County during his uh, attempts to uh, produce justice in the form of voting rights? Oh, absolutely. You know, they were, uh, they were, uh, I'm sure they would have known each other and known each other well, even though Ms. Hamer was in the northern part of the state and Laurel's in the southern part. So they've been maybe 200 miles from each other. But uh, certainly both of them were very well known uh, 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 throughout the state. Uh, um, oh, and uh, uh, so it's unimaginable to me that uh, they not only 
knew who each other were, but I suspect they knew each other. Okay. Okay. Um, well, I'm reading a book called Walk With Me about Ms. Mrs. Hamer. I'm not done with it. I'm in the fourth chapter, and it sounds like Mr. Um, Damer should have come up by now um, because there's some mentioning not only of the NAACP and other people trying to get people to, you know, register people to vote, but also FBI, the FBI receiving reports and the author says giving uh, cursory responses to paraphrase. But maybe maybe the gentleman will come up and I just want to honor him in this moment. I'm a victim of racism. I was completely ignorant. And now I know better about my grandmother's origin. So thank you, Gus, for um, the show. I think, again, black people probably more confused, less informed. I'll mute my line. Much obliged, Irie in Louisiana. Uh, hey, I say that all the time. Learn, study about local uh, history. Uh, it might be city, county, parish if you're in Louisiana, uh, state history. Study. You can learn lots about white supremacy, racism, and there are probably some extraordinary figures right in your the Fannie Lou Hamer absolutely deserves some summer reading time. James Meredith absolutely de- uh, deserves some summer reading time. Vernon Damer, I'd never even heard of him, so I'm glad. Got to spend some summer reading time to know about these folks. But that's been my observation frequently that – now, let's do this one real quick. Uh, if you're still – are you still with us? Did you go off the mute or enjoy Louisiana summer? I'm here. Who, who's the author of the book? Is it a white person or a non-white person? The biography on <laughs> Fannie Lou Hamer. Uh, uh, Lord Jesus, let's see. Um, the person is Kate Clifford Larson, and she Kate. is classified Kate Clifford Larson. Kate Clifford mm-hmm. Larson, and her picture is in the back, and she's definitely considered white. Mm. Unless, okay. unless she's not white and looks white, <laughs> I don't know for sure. But yeah, you know, these days there's so many. You know, with that other lady you had on the show, it, it could get a little bit uh, tricky. But um, she looks white to me. And again, I'm in the fourth chapter, but she's talking about um, not only um, what you mentioned about the council or the commission, but there's another one, the Citizens Council, the Mississippi Citizens Council, and uh, them physically terrorizing people. But again, Mr. Damer hasn't come up in the book. And I'm like, what? Like, there should have been, sounds like they would have, he should have got mentioned. Yeah. Maybe you haven't got to that part yet. We'll have to. Yeah, well, he's, uh, he is, he figures in some of the histories of the movement. but uh, as, I, as I said earlier, I, I feel that he has never gotten the recognition that he deserved. Mm-hmm. Uh, can I ask one other question, and I'm a mute uh, for sure. Is there in your book any um, information on FBI infiltration into uh, any of the any groups in Mississippi, white supremacists or the ones that were supposedly 
countering racism? Uh, yes, there's quite a bit there, and you know the, the, that would open up a whole different uh, can of worms for discussion. And Gus, I'm gonna have to sign off in a couple of minutes, but uh, uh, you know there, you know, it's a question of uh, you know the ter- the term informant can be a pejorative term, you know, one that's not flattering. It's somebody who's betraying someone. And uh, what the FBI did in some instances, that's how they solved the murders in the Shelby County. They paid Klansmen like $30,000 to give them information. Uh, that's not, you know, that's doesn't take a whole lot of courage. I think uh, the the person who uh, you know, serves as an informant for a cause rather than for money—that's something that I think is admirable in in cases like this. Um, so uh, yes, there's a great deal uh, about that. In fact, one of the major figures in the and the book is a white man who uh, uh, agreed to join the Klan in order to inform on them. Right on. And Vernon Damer is mentioned in Walk With Me. Just keep reading, uh, Irie. Not huge part, but he does come up briefly. Uh, before we uh, let you enjoy the rest of your evening, I can get in uh, two quick questions, I think. The first one, this is uh, in your book a little bit later on uh you write this is chapter 24 uh you write to confront the th- and this is you talked earlier about the jews in mississippi being attacked you said mimi your uh, girlfriend so-called jewish uh to confront the threat meridian jews turned to law enforcement for help at one time it was thought as many as half of the 85 members of the meridian police force were either clansmen or sympathizers of the invisible empire but the police chief, Roy Gunn, upset over the unrest the Klan was causing, had turned from segregationist to stern moralist and had purged his department of troublemakers and won the trust of Jewish citizens. He also adopted FBI extralegal tactics. Gunn ordered a squad of policemen he called black shirts to intimidate local Klansmen by blowing up low-level bombs near their homes or shooting into their windows at night. Now, he has lots of these little ticks. He talks about tactics, uh, extra legal, as it were, paying people to get information, all of this. I was stunned. I said, man, they could have done this when they killed Medgar Evers, right? (laughs) I'm like, what in the world? How is it that you can have all of these amazing counter efforts when they go bomb a Jewish church but black people have been dying by heaps. And, eh, eh. <laughs> what in the Did they have a similar response when any of the black people were killed in Mississippi? Not as much as it should have, no question. And if some of that response was you know, clearly improper and illegal, uh, uh, what had... Uh, what had motivated them in part was uh, 
uh, and this was something the FBI sought from uh, uh, these Jewish people. They, they said, how can we help? And the FBI said, give us money. And so in many of these instances, these Jewish businessmen were wealthy. They had money, and uh, they created uh, what was, as I say in the book, it was basically uh, an illegal slush fund uh, operated by the FBI to pay informers. And the informer who uh, set up the ambush of the uh, Glenn Bomber, uh, Tom Terrence, uh, his informant, who was paid $25,000 out of uh, the slush fund, he was one of the people who murdered the boys in Neshoba County. So that's, that's how perverted and distorted uh the whole system of informants could get. Context of white supremacy, indeed. My uh, other question before we let you enjoy the rest of your Wednesday evening, this is uh, a little bit earlier in the text, or quite a bit, chapter 15. Uh, you write, nevertheless, Landrum's, Tom Landrum's concerns reflected the temperament at the last few Klan meetings. Most members, like Landrum, had been uneasy since the attack on the Dominigger's home. Though the Imperial Wizard had the authority to call for a code for assault, many members felt the mission had been carried out without the group's formal approval. Few of them thought they were actually signing up for murder when they joined the White Knights. Yet, the murder, yet murder was in the air of recent meetings and the mood had been exacerbated by the fear that some of the Klansmen had become witnesses for the FBI. That uh, sentence specifically, a uh, few of them thought they were actually signing up for murder when they joined the White Knights. That, I mean, really. What other reason is there to join the Klan at this moment, really, at any moment, but especially at this moment, in the middle of mass resistance, in the wake of Brown v. Board of Education, Dr. King's I Have a Dream and all of that, you join the Klan and you are stunned that they are talking about killing a nigger, damer nigger, any nigger. Really? Well, that's what they would say. And uh, uh, I just, I, I I'm interrupting so. only because this isn't a quote. This is what you said. So you are writing, few of them thought that they were actually signing up for murder. You didn't put that in quotes, so do you think that that's true? I think that uh, certainly well, when it got, they were probably signing up for uh, resistance, but not the extreme resistance of, say, killing someone. And, you know, that's borne out by the fact that uh, there were a number of Klansmen who bailed out of the organization and, and left uh, when they turned to murder. Yeah. They should have known better, but uh, they didn't think they were buying into murder. Maybe uh, intimidation, uh, maybe 
uh, encouraging, say, people of color lose their job because of their participation in the movement, but uh, not go so far as murder. And I think that's borne out by the fact that there were a lot of people who dropped out when it turned to murder. But there were other hardcore members who you know, very much subscribed to it. That's a correlation. Was it that they dropped out because of the murder? Or they dropped out because, oh, it looks like there might be consequences for this. I mean, there had been ton you in the book. It's not that the Damer murder is not the first killing of a black person mentioned in this book. You go back to Willie McGee. You didn't have droves of white people leaving the Klan after Willie McGee's killing or after uh, Medgar Evers killing, did you? Well, uh, Willie McGee, was, that was murdered by the state. That was an execution, you know, public execution. You know, it was even uh, before the Klan really got revived again. Um, so, uh, I would again, I would contend that not everyone who joined the Klan uh, joined one because they were in favor of murder, but uh, would never have joined if he, if they thought it was going to lead lead to murder. Mm. This is the same state. So at this point, this is like a decade after Emmett Till's lynching and castration in Mississippi. Greenwood. You know, Emmett Till was 1955, and uh, the Willie McGee execution was. Uh, 1951. I mean, all the events that you're talking about in your book, they're mid-60s. That's what, the Damer nigger bomb. That's what we've been talking about. All oh, this is like mid-60s. So that's a yeah. decade afterwards. So I'm a white man in Mississippi in mid-1960s, as I just said, a decade after the castration and lynching of Emmett Till and I joined the Klan or any of these other clandestine racist organizations, and I don't think... They're going to be killing a black person and or I'm surprised. What? The Klan is going to kill a black person. And wow. White ignorance again. That is so common. Man, oh, man. Uh, do you know the names Charlie Eddie Moore, Charles Eddie Moore, Henry Hezekiah D? Are those names familiar to you, sir? Uh, I don't think so. Okay. That's uh, the whole book that we just read, Black Bodies in the River. You know that section in the book that you talk about the black males who are accused of being some gun-running operations for black Muslims in Chicago, bringing guns to Mississippi to fight against uh, whites and they end up being killed? Yeah, you had a lot of uh, goofy things back then. That's the two black males who were accused of all that that you referenced in the book. That's Charles Eddie Moore Henry Hezekiah D. Uh, Davis Houck, he mentioned, or that was the whole point of his book, was uh, give, as you did with uh, Mr. Damer, he wanted to do the same thing with these black males because they get mentioned regularly in all of this and they rarely get named. Charles Eddie Moore, 
Henry Hezekiah D. We just talked about them accused of being gun. Can you even imagine being gun runners for black Muslims in Chicago bringing guns to Mississippi to fight back against the white people? Like what? And even how they died because of this goofiness, no evidence. They get chained to a chair and thrown in the river after they're beaten alive. They could have done the whole slush fund and bombings for that, too, but nope. Charles Eddie Moore, Henry, Hezekiah D., uh, and I think they were like 20, like super, super young and gun-running negras. Uh, anywho, much obliged for sharing some of your time. I do think you – I mean, the rape, that's standard. Anytime a white person does that, they're talking about slavery, and it ends up being some romance or whatever. I think that that is deliberate racism every time, and I think that you greatly minimize the uh, Pro operation and FBI's complicity with the system of white supremacy. It almost – this book at times reminds me of Mississippi Burning, where we have kind of a – Pollyannish telling of good white guys undermining the Klan and racism and all of that. I will have to run, but I will say that I don't think there's anything favorable written in the book about the COINTELPRO operation. I mean, I'm critical of that. You have one paragraph of it. You don't even talk about it very much in the book. That's what I just said. this This was part of the COINTELPRO operation and you certainly don't find anything where i speak favorably of COINTELPRO. as i just said it's barely mentioned in the book half okay. paragraph maybe anywho much obliged for your time thank Good you sir time. nice talking to you take yes, care sir. yes sir context of white supremacy curtis wilkie octogenarian I can't even say suspected like you get any white person historian you write about I mean really I was going to focus on the cointel pro but I mean woo you write about slavery and it's an interracial relationship that right there you are not a suspect I mean really it's 2022 if you need again same thing I said years ago hey we have had years at this point of Me Too. If you need a lecture, consent. If you can't consent, unless you can tell me, you know, I think teenage Sally Hemings, I think she could have got a step stool and got up and told that grown white man, look here. Look here, old TJ. You keep your hands off of me. I don't tolerate reckless eyeballing. You get on out of here. You find a grown white woman, you get on out of here. I find that hard. I find that equally hard to believe as a white man or woman joining the Ku Klux Klan or any other clandestine racist organization and saying, what? They're talking about killing a nigra. What? <laughs> what? I'm getting out of here. I, I did not join the Klan. Thinking you all were going to be killing niggers. What? Okay. Anywho, uh, I cannot emphasize enough, though, the, the COINTELPRO aspect. That's when Dr. Welsing said, read racial matters. You can't talk about racism, white supremacy, if you do not read racial matters. Now, he can give you that nonsense about, oh, I didn't say anything favorable about COINTELPRO. He didn't talk about it at all. Hey, 
mention how Cointelpro, they have files on all of the black people you mentioned in this book, Dr. King, Dick Gregory, Bob Moses, probably Vernon Damer, long list. Any, I can't imagine a world where Ver, Vernon Damer doesn't have a Cointelpro uh, file. How would that work? Fannie Lou Hamer forgot her. How would that work? All of these folks. That's not mentioned there at all. It's just a brief. The only reason this book wouldn't get a F the way that I did with Davis Houck is because he doesn't mention it at all. He does mention it quickly, but I mean, wow, it is super quick. And as I told him, it's minimized. Like you would get the feeling this is like Mississippi burning. What do I mean? That's the 1989 film about Mississippi uh, Freedom Summer. J James Cheney and the two white boys that he just mentioned uh, being killed and the FBI white guys get to come in, be heroes, uh, and save the day. Yay, isn't it grand? We're against racism. When that's, they don't even tell a truthful story. And the more important component is they didn't even want to do this. That's the major part of Kenneth O'Reilly's book. Like, man, they are down here. The white FBI agents are here. Robert E. Lee, FBI agent. Now, come on. Who worked in South Carolina in the Highway Patrol. Now he's here to do justice for the Negras. Mm. Come on. This, this book would give you that impression. And as I told him, man, you can say that. And maybe for white people, that's fine. A white man can write a book, a history book, where the footnotes are not in the body of the text and all of these quotes and things are happening, like I said, as though a stenographer is right there and fingers of lightning on the keyboard so we have a nice transcript of everything. Like, come on. Footnotes have to be in the body of the text, like all of that, especially when you're writing things talking about rape and it becomes an interracial relationship. Now, again, pause when I asked him that question, isn't this rape? He responded, oh, no, no way. These interrelationships are great, and we've got more of them in Mississippi, blah, blah, blah. I had to even bring it back like, sir, I read this passage for a reason. I'm talking about this passage, not these little tacky, trashy arrangements happening in 2022, although that's about the same thing, but we can come back to that. You not calling this rape? Oh. And you can't even, we have to go through all of this to get to, oh, yeah, that is obviously rape. We somehow end up at, oh, isn't it grand? Isn't it a side of progress? Isn't that the same tacky line racists use all the time? Guess who's coming to dinner and all? That was at the same time period, the late Sydney Portier, same time period as all of this, mid-60s. That's the answer. Get your isn't that white woman in Florida? She's in Hawaii, but the charges in South Florida, that's progress, right? Second-degree murder charges, isn't that what she's uh, facing? White woman, social media star, stabbed, black male partner. They argued all the time. She's in Hawaii, though. Back to the mainland, I guess, at some point to, you know turn herself in. Got to get in a few more of these pina coladas before we hit the big house. How is that progress? Why has that been thought? Of? Again, if that were the case, Sally Hemings and TJ would have knocked all this out, you know, century. We wouldn't be here. I'd be chilling, enjoying my summer evening at the beach.
Anywho, uh, and for the record, I do not think it is like an act of bravery and, you know, wow, this white man uh, infiltrating the Klan and reporting back on their activities. A number of white people did that. Some of them got paid very well. Uh, allegedly, he was unpaid uh, in doing all of this. But I mean, <clears throat> be a black person in Mississippi. You don't even have to be Vernon uh, Damer, Medgar Evers, Fannie Lou Hamer. All of these folks are extraordinary. And then some. You don't even have to be that, though. You could just be a regular. What did I just say? Charles Eddie Moore, Henry Hezekiah D. You can go back and listen. Davis Houck, he was just on the program days ago. Black bodies in the river. Very same subject matter, Mississippi. Like, man, we have killed it over the years for Mississippi. I mean, like Mississippi. <laughs> we have done, like, tons of content. That's one of the subject areas for Isabel Wilkerson's The Warmth of Other Sons. Lots of content, but uh, that, or I guess that area having so much rich history uh, with regards to racism, uh, white supremacy, their names, Charles Eddie Moore, Henry Hezekiah D., they were not out there counter-racist soldiering. They were not out peddling, you know, the final call. They were not out giving speeches and, you know, we got to rise up and do something about the cracker in Mississippi. That is not eh. <laughs> like uh, not at all. And get at, certainly they were not running guns to Chicago or anywhere else or crack, whatever. And you Negros are working with the black Muslims, aren't you? And when they took them to the minister's house, they ended up killing the minister, too, because they said, oh, you got them at the church. Take us to the church. And they rip up the whole church looking for the guns that they don't find. And then after they kill these black guys, Charles, sorry, Charles, Eddie Moore, Henry, Hezekiah D., then they go back and kill the minister, too. System of white supremacy, racism. And again, so you are white and you join the Klan, you don't know or are surprised, what? The Klan is about killing Negroes? What? What? In Mississippi? When did this start? Oh my goodness, I'm out of here. <laughs> Come on. Let's see. Uh, Woolly-minded, we'll take a, a quick break. Words are so important. It is challenging when we get white people who are older on the program uh, because it just can be difficult. Sometimes they tend to how shall we say ramble? Now, race soldiers ramble a lot anyway. Sometimes it's just not to answer your question. So sometimes it can be hard, like, is this, you know, an octogenarian that we're talking to or is this just a race soldier? Anyway, I do think it is important just some of the experiences, things that they've seen directly that they can testify to. Even, even with that, some of the consistency. Now, all the racist jokes that you know he heard, just, hey, you, I think he said he was 82, just take the, what, six months that you were on the Ole Miss campus with James Meredith and what you heard during that period. You don't remember one line, one zinger about old James Meredith and the Negras up at Oxford, Mississippi. Come on. He said he didn't, he said he didn't remember, but if he could, he wouldn't share. And we've heard that so many. I think we've heard that as many times as we've heard white people insist Non-white people are the experts on racism, white supremacy. They're more informed. They have easier access to information. 
I'll tell you, non-white people do not have easier access to the Mississippi state sovereignty files. We talked about that with Davis Houck. Deliberately, white people obfuscated and made it difficult and even got an opportunity to come and retract uh, material from the files. Maybe Curtis Wilkie got to see everything that was in his file. Maybe he didn't. I know one thing, it was not black people. It wasn't the family of Chokwe Lumumba. It wasn't the Damer family making the decisions. It wasn't Fannie Lou Hamer's relatives making decisions about what's going to be released, what we're going to keep private. Are we just going to, hey, let it all be released to the public, FOI on it all. I know it wasn't black people in the Delta making that decision, Magnolia State as they call it. Anywho, we'll take a quick break, see if any folks have commentary to share, get ready to wrap things up. Just briefly, I will say I think it's so important. Uh, Irie dialed in. She said she has family members. I'm not surprised. Right there, Alabama, Louisiana, Georgia, Mississippi, all the same thing. Uh, You know, relative. But I mean, yeah, relatively speaking, those lines are imaginary. Um, Saying that, hey, my grandmother lives right there. I've been there. I've never heard of Vernon Damer. Me either. The same thing I said. I've never heard of this Vernon Damon. His name's on the front of the book. I've never heard of this guy. Who is this guy? We've done all this talking about Mississippi. Wow. Who's the guy that wrote the, the book about Vernon Damer? White. Even the book she told us about. What is it? We uh, Walk With Me. Kate Clifford Larson. White woman. Now, I'm sure there are many biographies on Fannie Lou Hamer, as there should be. But I'm not surprised. White woman writing about Fannie Lou Hamer, Vernon Damer, history of racism, white supremacy in Mississippi. I'm not surprised. That's what I expect, especially if it's going to be done. I can't even say accurately, but with details or at least with the opportunity to be very accurate, comprehensive, detailed, because you're white, you will have access substantial same thing with Catherine Pellinero said the police dumped their files on her have free have fun non-white people are confused can I get that in too before we roll out he referenced he did the standard I've pointed this out for so many years I hope people you know if you've listened to the cows whatever if you listen consistently you it should be like wow solidified I've heard this so many times like Gus might know what he's talking about on that one if you listen to one program and dip hey I'm trying to emphasize white people will do this all the time they will quote a non-white person when they are trying to sell you some malarkey a lie about racism white supremacy when he was given all of his buckets of words being in my view deliberately dishonest about rape calling the plantation a romance interracial unions and such he started out Natasha Trethway, Mississippi-born poet laureate, called it the muck of ancestry. What? VGQ to her. Victims guaranteed qualified. I really don't care what she said. And I particularly, I despise poetry. That's nothing but nonsense and metaphors and just talking crazy. Doesn't have to make sense. And I'm trying to rhyme, rhyme and sound cute with words. We need logic, not poetry. 
I don't care what a non-white person, victim of racism, has to, especially when they're, what is that? Metaphor, that's what I would expect from a poet. Well, I don't care what they have to say about anything, white or non-white. What is that? The muck of ancestry? Do you mean like Thomas Jefferson and racists raping black children? Is that what you mean? Do I think it's better, more accurate to call that the muck of ancestry or to just be accurate and say, oh, yeah, there's been a lot of white people raping black children and producing offspring? Anytime, anytime someone classified as white gives you some sort of nonsense like that, that is flagrant, it's not logical, it's not accurate, it's total deception, and they got, hey, Miss Tressway, you know, she said, or Frantz Fanon, you know, he said, James Baldwin, those are some of the ones that they love, especially James Baldwin, they love to quote, that it'll be some total nonsense. James Baldwin, VGQ. Frantz Fanon, VGQ. As I said, Natasha Trethway, VGQ. That's another reason why it is white guests only. I don't care what they think. I'm talking to you, white man. And if that's going to be your justification when you know this is rape, ain't no discussion, ain't no need for all that and muck of history. You're a journalist. You traffic in words. You've written six books. Octogenarian white supremacy racism. I don't know what to say, man. Like, maybe when I'm James Meredith's age, I'll talk to these white people like that and be like, oh, man, they're cool and all the rest of it and blah, blah, blah. <sighs> Just see the same patterns. Uh, they talk about racism uh, in an inaccurate way that I feel is deliberate. They do a lot of minim- moo, minimizing, obfuscating, and omitting. Standard operating procedure. We'll take a quick break, see if folks have any thoughts they need to share before we wrap things up and uh, get ready for the book club tomorrow, context of white supremacy. Buckets and buckets of words indeed. Let's see. And from the late 1960s, after the death of Martin Luther King and the riots and the upheavals and all like this, and black people with their fists in there and all like that and trying to stumble and fumble and find their way and get focus, the white supremacists made a blueprint and put it in action. And that is, I'm going to have these people so confused, they don't even know what they started out to do. And by the late 1970s, they had just about completed it. And we've been on that ever since. And you mentioned something very important. They are more comfortable than ever. But see, it's like making gorillas comfortable in a cage or monkeys or pandas. You still got them in a cage, but they're comfortable. See, so give them some bling bling. It's like giving an animal a brand new car and training the animal to ride up and down the street in it. And then you stand back and point at the animal. Like one white man said in the late 1950s, he said he doesn't care 
What kind of car a Negro has? He said he's still a nigger. And when he rides by in a shiny car, to him, it's just a monkey in a car. White people built a car, put a monkey in it, trained the monkey to drive the car, so now you're looking at a monkey in a car. See, but black people don't see themselves that way. But this is how the white supremacists see us, and they are the ones who run our business. And we have to know that, that when they look at us, that's what they see. That that's what they see. That that's what they see. And at a subliminal level, what they see begins to spill over into our brains so that we, at a subliminal level, see each other that way and indirectly see ourselves that way. Context of white supremacy. I'm glad I got to a number of some of the word usage in the book and not using the term rape. Uh, to describe the sexual activity on the plantation, generations of it, in fact. Uh, Wooly, I think that might even be in the Word God. Man, if somebody has their Word God present, is Wooly in the Word God? And then the way that he explained it as well, because he said it's uh, like foggy-minded, not well thought out, like, woo-wee. <laughs> That's exactly what I was thinking. Like, you can spell that out. W, I don't know, lots of O's maybe. I have to think about that, but that's what I was thinking, like, wow, that is exactly the way that racists talk about black people. No thinking, dumb brain computer, everything is not well thought out. Woolly mind, talk about their hair and their brain computer, woolly-minded folks. See if that one is in the word, God. I, I think it is. I think it is. Anywho, in the dark, because they say that too, if you don't, they'll, they'll use that as a sin, because he, he couldn't even find the synonym. I thought that was so significant. He was searching. He said, I can't even think of a synonym. Wooly, wooly. Uh, uh. <laughs> uh, the dark people? No, 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 no. Um, let's see. And he even said that at the beginning. He used that metaphor in the dark corners. I don't even know what that means. Shouldn't it be white corners since we're talking about the misconduct of individuals classified as white? Anywho, uh, also make sure I get in the two things. The title, When Evil Lived in Laurel, I think that's another component of the minimizing of white supremacy racism because it gives the impression, and that's how a lot of us are taught to think about all of this, that racism, white supremacy is in the past, he kept saying that we made so much progress, we made so much progress, we made so much progress. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, Frederick Jermaine Carter, go ask his family how much progress we've made. James Craig Anderson, go ask his family how much progress have we made. Anyway, uh, the title, it gives that suggestion that this is something from way back when, not now. And even evil. I mean, it is religion of white supremacy, but I would appreciate it even better if it was when white supremacy racism lived in Laurel. But I mean, again, none of this stuff is there now. Really. The other, that uh, the so-called Jewish 
churches when he talks about them being bombed. And apparently there were a number of these bombings uh, targeting so-called Jewish churches, uh, individuals classified as white who say they are so-called Jewish in Mississippi. This was uh, throughout the South. They have whole books on this, too, which might be interesting. But especially I had no idea. So they go bomb a Jewish church. It's not, hey, let's all come and hold hands and sing We Shall Overcome or whatever the white Jewish equivalent would be. And, you know, we got to be nonviolent. We forgive. No, 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 no. (laughs) That's not what they said at all. Not even close. They get a slush fund together and go out and do low-level bombings near Klan residences and what? Like, what? What? I never heard about that. Like, now, again, now, that's one. Pause right there. Now, so do you think black people are informed about You think black people throughout Mississippi, Delta region, they know. Oh, yeah. They started bombing those Jewish churches. Those white people that we mean business. They started going and getting money together, creating slut. You think black people? Ira, your grandmother, she knows all about that. Just Laurel history, so she knows all about this. I never heard anything of the such. That's so fascinating because if enforcement officers, if they can conduct these sort of raids and get, you know, all these illicit banking accounts set up and what have you to pay people off and uh, set up counter-violence attacks, you could have done that for Medgar Evers, right? Emmett Till, right? And Emmett Till was a decade earlier. So maybe if you had done some of that, then we wouldn't have to be talking about, man, why don't they indict that old Carol and Brian Dunham? Man, we could have bombed them and hushed everybody up. That's what I mean, too. Like, you're not going to sit around and tell me about so-called good whitey. He couldn't even answer that question. In, in fact, that was when he ended up segueing about, dang, maybe I did practice racism, but I didn't mean to. Now, that's fascinating, too. I didn't even ask him if he was racist. <laughs> if he practiced racism. I just said, can you be a good white person and practice racism? And that's where we ended up at. Fascinating. Uh, but you're not going to tell me a whole lot about so-called good white people, well-meaning white people, courageous white people, or any of that nonsense. If you can go out and do this for white people when they are targeted by the Klan, so this is not acceptable. And we're going to show you better than we can tell you. Nonviolence, nonviolence, any means necessary. This is going to stop today, right now. And let's get to it. You could have done the same thing for the Negroes. They didn't want to do that. Why would that be? Tell me something. His book does not give that impression at all. As I said, it minimizes the FBI and their Pro operation, their dedication to white supremacy racism, their support of white supremacy racism. He said he hadn't read Dr. Kenneth O'Reilly's book. Like, hey, you lived through all of this, white man. You're in your 80s. You should know. As I said, generally, I suspect that you do know you're doing this deliberately 
to lions, particularly any white person. They come and start talking to you about the plantation and telling you that this is romance. Anything other than rape, you already know what you should be thinking about this here individual classified as white. He is race soldiering hard. Sometimes they do it with a pen, but it is still race soldiering. Let us see. Might be lying. I don't know. Is she still there? Ira, you think your grandmother knows about, hey, at a time, they were bombing white people classified as Jew or Jewish in Laurel, Mississippi, and their response was not nonviolence. They had clandestine bombing operations. Do you think your grandmother knows this? Mm-mm. No. Um, she's, she's deceased now. Um, I, I, like I said, I'm not sure if she knew about Mr. Damer, and I certainly know she doesn't know about any white people <laughs> gathering funds to defend other white people, especially. You know, she would have spoke. She, she was. I believe she was as honest about racism as she possibly could be. She didn't really hold back much about white people, um, just to be forthright. Um, so I. You know, I got an understanding generally um, from her. I can say that, but mm-mm, she wouldn't have known. <laughs> she wouldn't have known about uh, any Jewish people doing anything like that. And and I agree with you. It's um, very selective. It just shows that you know, dedicated to racism. I wanted to make a comment real quick about the racist jokes, if that's okay. Oh, let's hear it. Yeah, I was thinking, um, I wonder if white people don't want to share the jokes they've heard because it's uh, it's a way, it's admitting that we're on their mind, even when we're not around, like it's an obsession. Uh, And... I think they're maybe subconsciously ashamed of that, not the fact that they're racist, it's just the fact that there are no black people around whatsoever. They could go on with their days and not be bothered by us because, you know, we bother them, obviously, when we're around. Um, So to come up with jokes, it means like it's an obsession. Uh, I don't know if you would agree with that or not. Uh, makes total sense to me. Um, that's why I asked him. He's talking about the one of the Klan leaders who participated in the bombing. Well, I mean, they fired. So it's not an explosive device, but they used gasoline to set the house on fire. So arson, bombing. They didn't use the device. I guess they don't call it arson. Arson. That's the correct term. So the arson murder of Vernon Dahmer, Sam Bowers is one of the uh, race soldiers, Klan members who uh, participated in this killing. And he owned the, uh, his business. They sold like pinball uh, machines and what have you. It was called Sambo Amusements. And I asked him about that. Why would that, why is that the title of your business? 
you know, so his name is Sam Bowers. So I mean, you could say it's an abbreviation, you know, Sam Bowers, Sam. But I mean, really? Why not just call it Bowers Amusement? Sam Bowers Amusement. Put your whole name up it. Sambo? Mm-hmm. Same thing I said with the whip. They go out and they got to do some beating. Now he's, it's, it's in the book <clears throat> that the Klan members had a black whip they would use called Black Ann or Black Annie. And he said in the prison in Mississippi, Parchment, they also had a whip. What's it called? <laughs> no imagination, Black Annie. Why would that be? All these are almost like little uh, racist jokes, kind of. I mean, it is a racist joke. I'm going to call my business Sambo Amusements. <laughs> Absolutely. Got to be thinking about the Negra all the time. All the time. The, the, the songs and what he even mentioned. He mentioned the comedian in the uh, book, Brother Dave Gardner. That was what they coordinated one of the bombings uh, around at the Jewish facilities. They said he was going to do uh, a concert. And they said, oh, he's a big comedian. Everybody's coming to see Brother Gardner. What does he do? He said it in the program just a few minutes ago. He said, racist jokes. Uh, real quick, i tell you what bombing my grandmother did know about. And that was the church bombing uh, with the four girls. She shed tears over that. Um, she, and then uh, I remember distinctively what she also informed me of was, uh, you know, Emmett Till. And she forced me. I'm saying forced because she was my grandmother and I was young at the time. I don't want y'all to think like she used, like, a switch on me or a belt or something like, sit down and do this. But I had to watch the segment or the episode that Oprah hosted about Emmett Till, and I didn't know that a body could be disfigured like that at the time. I must have been in, like, fourth grade when that particular episode was broadcast. But she remembered that bombing about the four girls, and she she cried about it when she told me about it. So that's that's. <laughs> Those were the only bombings I had heard of in Mississippi. Mm. Uh, the four little girls, that was in uh, Alabama, but, you know, same region, same, you know. Oh, my bad. Uh, <laughs> you know, I'm I'm sorry, I'm not a history person, but I remember she told me about it, and she was, like, upset about it. She cried about it. But Emmett Till, yeah, that was Mississippi. So I guess I guess I'm just, you know, it's it's too much to keep up with at this point. <laughs> it is. It absolutely is. And I mean, it's the same. I mean, it's right next door. Is what I was, you know, saying because I did the same thing earlier in talking about some of these events. It's you know, it's right next door, same region. I mean, it can't be uh, that far. I have to look to see how far exactly Birmingham. Let's see. Let's see how far we're we're talking here. Birmingham to uh, Laurel. Birmingham. Let's see. Drive. Oh, see, it's 185 miles. We're not talking, you know, massive distance. I think he said that was about the same distance to get from the southern part of the state where uh, Vernon Damer is to the northern part of the state where Fannie Lou Hamer was. So, I mean, yeah, same region and absolutely. I would have been totally traumatized. And even to make sure for full context, since I do have a history degree, uh, that event took place in Alabama, September 1963. 
That, correctly viewed in context, is the response to the March on Washington, which was literally days earlier. Uh, little black girls and little black boys can go to school together and ran, 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 and bombing a church. Now, again, so you see this happen. Everybody all over the world saw this church bombing. You join the Klan. What? You all killed Negros. I never. What? Mm-hmm. I got a bridge I can sell you like you have got to be joking. That makes absolutely no sense at all. Like you can put that one right up there. <laughs> Curtis Wilkie deliberately practicing racism, white supremacy. And it's the same thing. Stupid white people like I, you could be GED Mark Furman. I think you would have an understanding the Klan might be about smacking a Negro or two. Kind of hard. Just maybe. I don't know how dumb you would have to be a white person to be ignorant about that in the 1960s, but I mean, whoo, you would have to be like comatose. Space program. I haven't been, you know, doing anything. We've been trying to see if we can get to the moon. We've got to beat Sputnik and all that, and I haven't been, you know, doing anything but studying. What's going on? You haven't paid attention to anything in about 10 years. Got to be that sort of thing. Anybody else? Come on. Even if you're five. I think you would have an understanding, like, what the Klan is up to, 1960s and the Negro. Anywho, uh, let's see. Retired firefighter in Florida should be with us uh, as well. Just make sure I give out a quick reminder. We'll be here tomorrow. Book Club should be wrapping it up. Absolute madness. I'm so glad we read this book. Like, wow. Um I, I'm just so glad we read it. It's not even like a favorite book. I think the author practiced racism just like uh, Curtis Wilkie in a number of ways uh, throughout the book. Many, many folks who've been with us reading it. I think Ivory, too, has been with us reading the text, but I've learned so much, and they have not talked about this case at all in the wake of what happened in Buffalo. So I'm so glad that we had uh, a chance to read it, and it seems maybe at least one or two uh, listeners learned something from the text as well. But we'll wrap it up uh, tomorrow. Uh, hopefully this will help us keep in mind the events in Buffalo that sparked us to read this book to begin with so that we can pay attention to that. Ca- Man, they are already talking about insanity, defense for Peyton Gendron. and like, woo, we should be really well prepared when it becomes trial time. But that is tomorrow, same time, 8 p.m. Eastern, 5 p.m. Pacific. Wrapping it all up, Joey 22. Uh, retired firefighter in Florida with us as well. Did you have commentary what you heard? Curtis Wilkie. Greetings, everyone. Uh, yeah, uh, I don't think that the word woolly is in uh, the word guide. I understand on uh, the alert that you had on the word it's, it's, it reminds me of the term Buffalo Soldier, which is another distinction that I was uh, that I read that uh, described black males. Uh, uh, but I, I didn't see the word woolly in there. I also thought that you came very close uh, in your description of your question 
the one that we routinely ask white guests about who's more confused about racism and white supremacy. Uh, uh, I think I think you came very close to uh, basically uh, surrounding him to whereas he could only answer the question in uh, the logical manner, which is the victims of racism and white supremacy uh, are, the, are the most confused out of out of the two. Uh, and, uh, eventually we're going to shape a question, shape that, that particular question to whereas that white person either elects to say something silly or answer a question truthfully, uh, which so far they are experts at, at, uh, and I'll be using metaphor, wiggling them themselves out of telling the truth. In other words, lying. I'll be frank. Uh, lying, which they are very good experts at, uh, uh, even on such questions as that. Uh, but, uh, yeah, uh, I, I was doing some other, some other things at the time. That's why my mind didn't come up with a direct question, so I just listened. Uh, to the program itself, but uh, yeah, I, I wonder what type of exact relationship that he had <laughs> with James Meredith uh, during that time. Uh, you know, I mean, uh, white people enjoy the global system of racism. They know on the benefits it is to be a white person that they are not willing to give up. Uh, he mentioned something about, I think that I'm assuming it was courage that he lacked. Uh, but I mean, 1962 <laughs> and Ole Miss, I think he was enjoying himself as a white person at that particular time, as a college student uh, in his late teens, early 20s, that sort of thing. And Mr. Meredith, Mr. Meredith uh, was a distraction. And then again, with some white people, uh, they, their guilt complex would trigger uh, in a lot of cases to whereas they would want to, you know, look both ways when nobody's around and say something nice to the nigger that's being tortured on a daily basis like Mr. Meredith was while he was at the University of Mississippi. And uh, those are my thoughts. Thank you. They got some of that in that documentary film that uh, I played a little snippet of at the beginning, Ghost of Old Mist, a few of the white people who, as he said, kind of wait till dub, take a, a double look, sneak and see. It's nobody around like, what? It's nobody. They sneak up and say, hey, James, come on, keep it up, man. I'm with you. <laughs> like, what? What does that mean? They see some, oh, they run, scurry off, don't see you, never speak to them again the rest of the semester. Like, what? What? <laughs> 
what is that word? Are you serious? Like, come on. Incidentally, when I asked him the question about the who is uh, more informed, I thought he was he was so quick. Like, he didn't give that one any thought like he did to the can a good person practice racism. He was so quick to say, oh, the, the, the victims, you know, they, they have such easier access to information, you know. I, I thought he was so fast. He just he sounded like every, every other person. What, what, uh, what made you think that he might be leaning towards being truthful with us? Uh, you, you, you hear me? Yes, sir. Oh, uh, I, I was I was listening to more on how you fashioned the question, and and it, 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 it's it's like I said before, it's getting it's getting more and more clearly and concisely descriptive. Each time that you ask you you're asking that question, I noticed that, uh, and and uh, from that standpoint, it's going to it's going to uh, put pressure on a white person. I don't care how gifted of a liar that that person is. That they're they're I think eventually they're going they're going to have to to state that if they want to come on the program pretending that they are doing something constructive <laughs> when it comes to racism, white supremacy as a white person. Now, if, 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 they don't, if they don't mind being a racist, that's, that's cool too, you know, but, but to the, those who come on, white people who come on your program and pretend that they are rendering some sort of assistance, which I think he's one of them, since he's talking about something called improvement. It, it, throw that word in the garbage, improvement, when it comes to, to racist white supremacy. We're not talking about a football game, like Mr. Fuller says, or a basketball game, where, he, where you steadily move yourself down the court or the field and whatnot, improving in yardage. No, a big swoop. And they know that. I, th- I think they know that better than we do. But uh, uh, a lot of them will come on a program such as yours with the idea in mind that, uh, that well, I'm not. Uh, what, I'm, what I'm writing about or what I'm talking about is racism, but I'm not a racist. <laughs> that, that's what, that's what, I, that's what I, I, I factor in every time. They may not say it directly, but through their 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 verbiage, that's what it tells me a lot. A lot of the white people that comes on the program, you know, they, I'm not a racist, but what I'm talking about to you, and I want you to I want you to like me for it. I want you to like me for that. I wrote this big book, but it, it's nothing in it that gives you any answers on how to solve the problem. You know, now now there are some non-white people that have literature like that also, but I put more of the responsibility on white people by far. On if you're going to write something, have it on, on racism, have an answer to it when you're talking to the victims. And uh, uh, you did ask me a question. Hopefully, I answered it. <laughs> 
Yes, sir. Yes, sir. That's what okay. we're doing, uh, all of us, trying to get better uh, refining our questions. I know some listeners have uh, as well. Uh, and even, as I said, we've been here for 13-plus years, and we've asked that. I mean, we've asked that question for years, uh, and we've asked it some different ways, right? Because sometimes we ask, you know, who do you think is more confused? And they always give it to us the same way. Uh, white people are more confused. Non-white people are more informed about racism. That's always the way that they give it to us. And I think, uh, as I said, it took me a while. Hearing this, hearing everybody, all the white people say, even most of the non-white people say this. Every, I think the only white person, Dr. Martin Kevorkian, he is the only one who said, nope, white people are more informed and gave a brilliant explanation as to why. He's the only one. Everybody else immediately to me, that's important. That is an important lie in the system of white supremacy racism. White people join the Klan, and they don't know that you all kill Negroes? What? Come on. Plantation is interracial romance. Come on. Stop lying. That's child rape every time. Same thing. Non-white people? Experts on racism? Come on. White people work. They even write books. I submit part of Writing books like this confuse non-white people. Don't think of this as rape. This is interracial romance. Well-meaning good white people who are not racist. All of that is malarkey. Uh, confusion is lethal. Can't be emphasized enough. And non-white people, you can't be in a position of domination and power for years where you have access to information. In fact, you can decide who has access to information? You decide. We'll release these files. Maybe we won't. We decide when you get Bill Russell's FBI file. Maybe you don't. Maybe you get all of it. Maybe you don't. It's not non-white people making those decisions. Really, anywhere in the known universe, unless I am super mistaken. Incidentally, the Jew situation where they were doing counterviolence, white people classified as Jewish, that was in uh, Jackson, Mississippi, uh, and Meridian, not Laurel, uh, although this happens seemingly throughout the state. In fact, I'll give you another one because there were so many. I was stunned because I'd never heard of that. I'd heard of so-called Jewish synagogues and what have you being bombed. That's happening today, right now. They had that in Wisconsin, right? Not that long ago. They're talking about that. I think it's the so-called 10 years since that happened. But, yeah, I did not know of they had counter-violence responses. So let me give you a little bit more. This is chapter 24, and then we can get ready to conclude. Mayor Al Green, oops, go back one more. Jewish leaders involved in raising the funds were convinced the local Tufts were responsible for the synagogue bombing in Meridian. In a meeting with Chief Gunn and Mayor Al Green, members of the Jewish delegation were asked if they would be willing to buy bodies rather than information. It was suggested that a professional assassin from a northern state could be imported to have the brothers liquidated. According to a memo written about the meeting, A.I.B. Botnick of New Orleans, the regional director of the Anti-Defamation League, had a better idea. Why not use the money to turn the Robertses into informants? Botnick told the mayor and the chief to take the two Roberts brothers out on a dark road at night and beat the hell out of them to within an inch of their lives. 
The memo reported. He said that if they would do this and then offer money, the Roberts brothers would talk. W-T-H. I don't know why in the world for black people it's got to be nonviolence. We got to keep cool and all the things. And then you go and kill some people that classified as white. It's way bombings, beatings, paying anything. <laughs> like, why can't you do the same? It's happened in the same state. What in the world? Oh, system of white supremacy, racism. The Negroes don't matter. We are about white supremacy, racism. Kill all the Negroes. God, that's Frederick Germain Carter. James Craig and they don't mention any of them. They want to talk about progress. They don't say we've made a lot of progress. Look at James Craig Anderson. They don't say that. Anywho, uh, even though I did not think this was a great book, I did learn. I didn't know who Vernon Dahmer was. That's important. And I didn't know about wow. Jewish gangsters, that's what all this is. Like going out and beat someone to an inch of their life to get the information like that is total thuggery and gangsterism. I had no idea. Like, what? I did learn something. But, you know, also, white people practice racism, white supremacy, refusal to give up the racist jokes, rape as interracial romance on the plantation, plantation romance, if you will, swirling. White people ignorant about the Klan kills Negras and minimizing Pro. Lots of things I could mention, but anywho. Uh, Curtis Wilkie, suspected race soldier. Hmm, that's why we do this. Interrogate, hopefully get better, learning how white people... You, Willie, thank you, retired firefighter. Willie, not in the word guide, but that is exactly the sort of thing Mr. Fuller would encourage us to be mindful about. Willie. With that, sobriety would be best. That was a note that came up repeatedly in his book when evil lived in Laurel, complaining about drunken racists out blabbing too much and drinking in public and causing fights and just being crude. Like, come on, get it together. Sobriety would be best. Even some drug addicts in there. Uh, in addition to being sober, if you're out and about, hey, you see someone being rowdy and hostile, exit. You have no idea. Is this person armed, pipe bomb, all of the above? Exit, unless you are ready to kill and die right now. All of that said, creator, we ask that you help us remain patient with other black people, victims of white supremacy, we ask that you help us remain patient with ourselves. Remind us to demonstrate the highest levels of black self-respect at all times, in all places, each and every time we are in contact with another black person. It has been time replace white supremacy with justice Immediately, no name-calling, no gossiping, no reckless production of offspring man. They were not named in the book, but we'll give the names again. Charles Eddie Moore and Henry Hezekiah 
D. Names at Vernon Dockin. <laughs> I forgot his name. Said in the book is the Dahmer nigger. Damer, excuse me. The Damer nigger. Whew. Black male privilege. Cows signing out. Thanks all for tuning in. Nigga, you so brainwashed. I'm a victim, no brother. Problem. You're a victim. Uh. I'm a victim of 400 years of conditioning. Shut up. The man has programmed my conditioning. Mm -hmm. Even my conditioning has been conditioned. <laughs>